republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Vice President Carter Overstone, like to take roll. Commissioner Walker. Present. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yi. Here. Vice President Carter Overstone, you have a, a quorum. Also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department, and I believe DPA is in route. For members of the public, we are going to take one line item out of order. We're going to do general public comment line item two first, and then we will do line item one. All right, line item two, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public but may provide a brief response. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the secretary of the Police Commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org. Our written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Go ahead. I'm sorry, guys, but I have to tell you the truth, okay? I'm really, really disappointed in you. I'm really disappointed. You are supposed to fight crime, and yet you hinder the police so completely that they can't do anything. The Second Amendment gives them all power. The well-regulated militia shall not be uh, infringed, not be in, limited in any way. So I'm sorry, but I got to fire. I'm, I have the authority to do this. I'm an American citizen. Along with my other American citizens, I can, my fellow Americans, I can do this. I'm going to fire four of you. Yance, Benedicto, Locardo, and Elias, I have to do it. You are supposed to help, not hinder the police. Does anyone want to comment on that? There's nobody to hold you accountable. Hold, who's holding you guys accountable, huh? Well, for now on, it's going to be Chief Scott. Yeah, he's going to do it for now on. And I have the authority to make this happen. And if you dare, if you dare, you know, uh, disrespect my authority as an American citizen, you're going to pay for it. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. Contrary to what I say, every police commission, it's all good to see you all. My name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I'm co-president of Economic D3. I want to start by saying thank you to the men and women of the San Francisco Police Department for the work they do on our streets. We truly cannot be a society without them keeping criminals scared. For too long, the Board of Supervisors has neglected their duties of ensuring public resources going towards pragmatic solutions to ensure the general public can be safe. And because they continue to neglect their responsibilities, our men and women in uniform are called upon to handle all kinds of calls in regards to public safety. Now, I've spoken to officers on the force, and I won't reveal their names lest they end up also leaked to the press, but my conversations always consist of, I'm scared of what will happen to me if I make any kind of mistake. Now, officers cannot be worried of what will happen to them when they make a mistake, when people, both residents and tourists alike, are being stabbed, shot, raped, mugged, and attacked constantly in our city. 
I even woke up today and read about officers responding to some sort of pipe bomb incident. Now, as I told the board just yesterday, the one silent majority who are becoming very vocal will no longer accept this as a reality of life. No one of any color, creed, should be afraid to walk the streets of San Francisco. And if this commission refuses to assist SFPD, we the people won't fail SFPD. Thank you. Hi there, uh, Alan Burrell, and I don't have any comments prepared today, but I'm here, uh, and I just wanted to step up here and thank Jay Connor uh, for speaking uh, for a large majority of this city, who goes unheard. So thank you, Jay Connor. Thank commissioners. There is no more public comment. Uh, Vice President Carter-Overstone, if you don't mind, if we take line item three before item one. Perfect. Line item three, consent calendar, receive and file, action, DPA August and September 2023 monthly statistical report. Motion to receive and file. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item three, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. You have six yeses. All right. And line item one. Weekly officer recognition certificate, presentation of an officer who has gone above and beyond in the performance of their duties. Sergeant Justin Begarin, star number 1728 from the Academy. Good evening, everyone. Um, San Francisco Police Department recognizes Sergeant Justin Bugarin, star number 1728 of the Academy, as the Officer of the Week. In recognition for your dedication and professionalism demonstrated through outstanding community policing practices and inspiring greatness by exemplifying the ideas of police officers as guardians of our community, uh, such as example of dedication is worthy of the highest esteem by the city and county of San Francisco and the San Francisco Police Department. Presented on the first day of November 2023, signed Chief of Police William Scott. Thank you, Vice President Carter. So I just want to add to um, what Lieutenant Meehan just read about uh, some particulars about Sergeant Bugarin's. Um, we've talked a lot about our, our efforts to really upgrade our, our tactical preparedness and really put an infrastructure in place to, to teach our officers um, 
you know, the right tactics, better tactics, look at things that we can do better, lessons learned from, you know, incidents as we evaluate them. Sergeant Bagarin has been such an instrumental part of that work, along with his, his lieutenant entire team, but it, today we're, we're here to talk about Sergeant Bagarin. When we put together the FTFO unit in 2019, he was one of the pioneers that helped put that on the map. And that unit has done an amazing amount of work in terms of uh, getting us to a better place in terms of outcomes uh, with our responses to critical incidents, to everyday incidents, better coordination, um, as the course is called, critical mind, uh, CMCR, critical mindset and coordinated response. That's exactly the, the principles that Sergeant Bugarin and others on the team have really instilled into this police department that I believe has caused a reduction in um, both injuries to the public and injuries to officers. In addition to that, that unit has, has actually been recognized um, for their work, and Sergeant Bagarin has been recognized by the state of California for his work, and that recognition is very, very well deserved. I believe that we have uh, a unit in CMCR and a tactical unit at the academy that's on the forefront of making policing in this city better. And a big part of that is Sergeant Jessica Bugarin. So I just wanna say thank you for everything that you've done to lift up this work and make this department better because it's been a tremendous amount of work. I and mean, we started from scratch and now we are, I think, fully functional and really doing some really good work. So thank you. Thank you for everything. Director Kaywood. Uh, sorry. Uh, we just, DPA wanted to specifically recognize Sergeant Bugarin, and just so the community and the commission knows that in May of this year, he won an outstanding instructor award from POST, the Police Officer Standard in Training, the state agency, as Chief alluded to. There's only one award in the entire state, and this is what the state had to say about Sergeant Bugarin. Um, he is currently assigned to the training division, but has worked and continues to work in various assignments. He leverages his knowledge and expertise to create innovative training courses. Bugarin's leadership and vision was instrumental in the development of the Critical Mindset Coordinated Response Training Course. The course is specifically intended to reinforce and enhance officers' decision-making, tactical knowledge, skills, and abilities, resulting in significant reduction in reportable use of force incidents, which we've actually seen with our numbers here in San Francisco. Sergeant Bugarin conducts training needs assessments, which identifies gaps in officers' skills and knowledge, enabling him to develop targeted training programs that address specific areas of need. His innovation and intentional effort are not only having a significant impact on the professional growth of officers he trains and mentors, but also on the culture of the department, which is what we are seeing at DPA. His initiatives are creating a more positive and supportive environment that emphasizes continuous learning and professional development, having a positive impact on the culture of the department. He's known for his enthusiastic approach to training, his willingness to collaborate with outside agencies and city partners, 
Yay. He frequently invites us and them to attend training sessions. He encourages them to provide ideas and constructive feedback. This approach reflects his belief that community stakeholders share the same goals and by working together, strengthen relationships that contribute to a more positive and effective approach to public safety. So I just wanted this commission to know what the state had to say about um, Sergeant McGarren and DPA agrees wholeheartedly. I also just wanted to uh, thank Justin Bugarin and congratulate him on this very well-deserved recognition. Um, playing such an instrumental role in how the department trains officers uh, is an extraordinary responsibility because how you carry out your duties will affect how every officer for this department does their job. Um, you've been recognized by your excellence. I, I mean, I just want to emphasize again that the Commission on Police Officer Standards and Training, which regulates the licensure of law enforcement officers and sets statewide standings for, for, for training. Uh, there's, I think, over 75,000 sworn officers in the state. They give out one award for, for leadership, um, and, and that award you standing before us tonight. So just want to thank you for everything you do for the department. Um, you really represent the best of this department and, and the best of the city. So thank you. Commissioner Walker. Um, I also would uh, love to congratulate you. Um, when I first came on the commission, I came to, was invited to the, the training and um, just watching the commitment from yourself, from the whole leadership in the training center out there, um, as well as the, the new recruits and existing officers taking the training, it's, it's really why the department itself is on the forefront of, of being applauded for the reforms in effect. So um, uh, the training is everything. So congratulations and thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. I'll add my congratulations, Sergeant. I also got to attend the active attacker and the CMCR training and having read about it extensively before and having attended it, it really is. Um, like Chief said, an example that, that other agencies uh, look to. It's, it's a model that you can see the officers over the course of the two days really activate the critical thinking and, and the problem solving and the teamwork. And um, to see that in action is, is incredible. Uh, like the Vice President said, you know, everyone, every officer in the department has an impact on the community, but being in the position you are, you impact the officers that then impact the community. So it's an incredible uh, um, in fact, that you are able, able to have there, you know, in, in addition um, to all the different duties, FTFO and training also provides invaluable input on uh, to this commission on the DGO process. Um, you know, the RDGOs are written in large part by the department, and to have that input from, uh, we almost always will say, we won't, we won't hear what training has to say about this, we won't hear what FTFO has to say about this, so thank you always uh, for making that contribution as well. And, you know, as we've heard, you've received uh, incredible award from from the statewide, from your peers, and on behalf uh, of the people of the city and county of San Francisco, would like to add that uh, to your growing stack of awards as well. So, congratulations, Sergeant. Thank you, Commissioner. And don't forget, among those uh, those DGOs that the department wrote was our foot pursuit policy, which um, Sergeant Bagarin also is a principal author of. Um, Director Henderson. Yeah, I'll try not to. Uh repeat any of the accolades that have been said so far about your work and the role. 
Uh, but I just wanted to point out, and I think it's telling, I know we've alluded to the award for, from post uh, as a statewide award, but I also just wanted to make sure that there was contemplation and recognition uh, for the role that you played with CMCR, uh, Sergeant, in allowing CCOA to play a role and come and receive that training as well. The CCOA is the uh, California Civilian Oversight Association. Every civilian oversight agency in the state came to San Francisco to learn from San Francisco the critical mindset training. That information led to broad understanding. We're still receiving uh, comments about the training that they received from being able to participate in what you presented with us with San Francisco uh, Police Department. And it, it went a long way and it's had an impact. I just want you to know and understand that the role and the work that you play here in San Francisco is being seen beyond just the benefit uh, of what we receive here in San Francisco. And we are absolutely appreci appreciative. I don't know what the bonus is for this certificate. This, is it 10, are we up to 10,000 or 15,000 for <laughs> the thing? But uh, I just want to thank you so much for the commitment uh, and the ongoing engagement that is a benefit to the community of San Francisco and beyond. Thank you, Director. Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Vice President Carter Overson. Uh, again, I just want to congratulate you and thank you for all your hard work in preparing uh, our members for the, I guess, tactical preparing us into the 21st century. Uh, I know it's going to go a long way and you're, you're doing right now for us as, as we see fit and throughout the state of California. Uh, again, wish you continued success and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sergeant, no pressure, but wanted to invite you to address the commission and the public if, if you uh, wanted to. Oh, speech. Uh, yeah, sure. No, it, uh, I do feel the pressure, so I'm going to acknowledge that now. I did have something prepared, but just hearing everyone speak and just reflecting on uh, where we came from right now and why we're late, uh, it's uh, just going to go off the whim, if you will. We did want to thank uh, the Chief Scott and Assistant Chief Flaherty sitting back there, who was my captain at the training division at the time, uh, for that belief in uh, our vision and to inspire us and to, sorry, to support us. Uh, yeah, without them, uh, it, 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 we wouldn't be here today. Uh, again, working with the, the members of the DPA, outside stakeholders such as yourselves, and our input from the buy-in from our membership really has brought this place in a short amount of time to a, a, a very, something very proud to be of. Um, we, sorry we were late. Lieutenant Mean and I were at a less lethal training uh, preparing for APEC, and we told those officers we got to we're reaching a certain level, but let's take pride in all the growth. And the patches on our shoulders is something to be very proud of, and I don't take lightly. Um, so again, Lieutenant Meehan brought up a quote from our retired Lieutenant Nevin. The patches in our stars represent uh, what department, who we work for, uh, but our names also represent our families and the families that are at home supporting us and believing in us. And let's bring honor to them both. So that's what we're trying to do every day. So thank you guys all for your support. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Assistant Chief. Uh, thank you for the DPA and Lieutenant. Uh, but yes, thank you very much. Thank you for this very stressful situation for me. Thank you. <laughs> for members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item one, please approach the podium. Maybe why not? How are you doing? Uh, it's interesting, yes. It, it would be uh, good to remember that uh, your uniform, as the police guys, 
doesn't take over your responsibility, you see? You own your uniform, your uniform doesn't own you. I don't know why I'm saying that, I think it's important. The concept of uniform is, is goes back a long way in history, so uh, I think that's all for now. Thank you. Is this for general public comment? I didn't hear you, I'm sorry. No, this is for line item one. <coughs> The officer recognition. All right, and seeing no further public comment, line item four, adoption of minutes, action for the meetings of October 4th, October 11th, and October 18th, 2023. Motion to adopt the minutes. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item four, the adoption of minutes, please approach the podium. And seeing no public comment on the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. Line item five, Chief's report, discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you, Sergeant. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Uh, good evening, Vice President and Acting President Carter Oberstone, uh, Commission and Executive Director Henderson and the public. <clears throat> So I'll start off with just a really high-level overview of the weekly crime statistics of where we are year-to-date. We're negative um, 7% in terms of our overall crime reduction for the year. That is a difference of almost uh, uh, 3,000 crimes, a little over 3,000 crimes. The breakdown is violent crime is up 2% and property crime is down 8%. For violent crime, that's a difference of uh, about 112 crimes more than we had this time last year. For crop property crime, it's a difference of uh, just over 3,000 crimes, fewer than we had this time last year. In terms of the breakdown for violent crime, our homicides are up uh, slightly by 7%. We're at 46, and actually we had our 47th from a previous incident where it was declared a, a person just died, uh, previous stabbing. We had um, six homicides in the month of October we had, a, I think, about half of those were stabbings. So that is a, an alarming trend that we're seeing. And um, a little bit more to follow on that. Um, in terms of gun violence, we're down 6% year to date. That is um, an increase in, in reduction from the previous uh, last few months. But we have 147 incidents resulting in 174 victims. And just a breakdown of our gun recoveries, which is a part of our strategy, there have been 912 gun recoveries year to date as uh, compared to 890 gun recoveries this time last year. That is a 2% increase. Uh, going back to the homicides, we had a stabbing uh, that occurred at uh, Market and Octavia on 1026 at 126 a.m. The victim was stabbed during an altercation with the subject. Officers rendered aid until medics arrived and then the victim was transported with life-threatening injuries. The victim succumbed to his injuries, and during the investigation, a possible suspect was identified. The suspect was located and later detained that morning by Bayview officers in the area of Gerald Avenue and Upton Street. The investigation is ongoing on that particular incident. Uh, the next homicide to report is a homicide that occurred on 1026 at 3.18 p.m. 
This was in the 1100 block of Buchanan. One victim uh, received fatal injuries and one victim non-fatal injuries. And this was a shooting. At 3.18 p.m. or approximately 3.18 p.m., witnesses heard an argument between the subject and one of the victims, then heard several gunshots. One victim fell to the ground, and then the subject shot victim two, who had run over to victim one. Uh, victim two was also struck by gunfire. The subject fled, and the two victims were transported to the hospital and treated for gunshot wounds. Unfortunately, one of the victims uh, succumbed to her injuries. And the suspect appeared to be known by the victims, and there has been an arrest in that case. The third homicide was a stabbing that occurred uh, at Cortland and Hilton on 1029-23 at 4.13 p.m. in the Bayview. Following an altercation, officers located two victims suffering from stab wounds. Both victims were transported where one did not survive the stabbing. The second victim is in critical conditions. No arrest at this time. Um, there is uh, evidence to follow up on in this case, and I will keep uh, the commission and the public posted on this particular case. Um, the, this is um, one that I'll talk about more next week, but we also had a, um, another stabbing that occurred uh, in September, and that victim just died this week. So that is uh, another homicide that will be recorded for the month of October. Uh, I'll have more for that uh, this week. And the other incidents that of note were um, on 1023 at 1240 a.m. at 16th and Florida in the Mission Division, a victim which was a passenger in the vehicle. The vehicle pulled over, the victim exited, and the driver shot the victim twice and then fled. The victim was transported and is in stable condition. Um, no further on this case, that investigation is ongoing. Then at uh, 11, 5.11 a.m. on 1028-23 in the 1000 block of Coseta in the Bayview, the victim was in a vehicle and heard several gunshots. The victim then realized that uh, they had been shot and was transported to the hospital in stable condition. That is also still under investigation, no arrest at this time. And finally, in the 900 block of Geary in the northern on 1029 at 2.01 a.m., the victim of this case uh, sustained gunshot wounds following an altercation with the suspect. The victim was transported in stable condition, and that is still also under investigation. Um, we're following up on leads on that particular case. A couple of significant arrests before, um, before I close on Last Thursday morning, we announced uh, through a press conference that we had additional arrests from a shooting that occurred on June 18, 2023. This was the shooting along the Embarcadero, the stress for about a mile and a half. Uh, initially, there was an individual that was arrested um, in that case. That person was later released. And these particular arrests, which in total uh, two arrests and one um, one identification of a suspect that is in custody on other other charges. So three individuals in all, um, we were able to connect to this particular crime. The two individuals were booked. The third individual has not been booked on this particular um, case as of yet, but we have identified that person and we expect charges to be filed on that case as well. As you all might remember, this was uh, on the Embarcadero with two vehicles exchanging gunfire as they travel from Beach Street, basically down the Embarcadero, um, almost to the um, baseball stadium. 
As the suspects were driving, one of the vehicles struck a 10-year-old and the second vehicle struck a 16-year-old victim, both of who were crossing the street at the Embarcadero. So this was a really, really uh, heinous incident and it was very, very dangerous in terms of what happened there. So I just want to thank our investigators who really put in a, a lot of work on this case to put this together. Uh, they, in all, uh, last Wednesday served five search warrants they recovered 13 handguns, four assault rifles, and a large volume of ammunition. So there's still work to be done on this case. We're not done yet. Um, there are other aspects of this case to investigate, but our officers and our investigators, uh, led by Lieutenant Tom McGuire, did a really an outstanding job at this point on this case, and more to follow. And lastly, uh, to report on an auto well, two incidents. First, the auto burglary arrest that occurred on the 100 block of Santa Rosa in the Ingleside on 1028. Uh, this was a stolen vehicle that was spotted by officers after being involved in an attempted robbery in the Mission District in which shots were fired. Multiple plainclothes units followed the vehicle to the 700 block of York Street where the driver exited and, and, and attempted, well, and committed an auto burglary. The vehicle then fled to the two, 2000 block of Burrow Street where the suspect fled on foot and was later taken into custody by SFPD officers. The subject, who is a juvenile, was booked into the Juvenile Justice Center, and the attempted robbery that occurred in Mission District connected to this individual still under investigation. Uh, another really nice job by our, our coordinated between our, our plainclothes and, and uniform officers on this particular case. Uh, lastly, this incident um, was a very high-profile incident. This was a, a EOD or explosives related incident that occurred uh, started at the 600 block of Filbert on October 29th at 5:52 p.m. Officers responded to a call of a battery slash aggravated assault at the location, which was a church. Uh, witnesses pointed the officer to the subject as he fled in a vehicle. As officers followed the subject vehicle, the <coughs> subject threw an explosive device at their vehicle, which exploded. As officers pursued the vehicle, the subject threw a second explosive device out of his vehicle and that device also exploded. As the suspect got on the freeway and fled toward the East Bay, the California Highway Patrol took over the pursuit and SFPD officers terminated their portion of this pursuit. The CHP uh, took the suspect into custody in the city of Martinez. Several crime scenes were located and processed and this investigation is ongoing. Uh, that subject or suspect has uh, been charged with multiple crimes. And this was a, this was an extremely dangerous situation. Uh, bombs being, or explosives being thrown at officers during a pursuit on city streets. Uh, these officers really uh, did a, a really nice job maintaining their, their composure in the midst of everything that was going on out there. So more to follow on the investigation as uh, we, we do still have work to do in this case, but that suspect is in custody. Uh, has been detained, and um, if any other information comes out of this that uh, is appropriate to bring to the commission and the public, I will do that at that time. Uh, that is it. I think I'm out of time, but that's it for my report for this week. Great. Thanks, Chief, for that report. Uh, I wanted to ask about APEC um, since that's coming up soon. Um, could do you do you know how many? law enforcement personnel will be in San Francisco uh, for, for APEC? Um, it will be a lot. I mean, the numbers are going to be in the thousands as far as the total uh, amount of officers. 
we, this department will be fully deployed, meaning mobilized. Actually, everybody will be on uh, 12 or 14 hour shifts, depending on their assignment. California Highway Patrol uh, is bringing, I think, over over a thousand personnel to to assist with this event. And then we have our you know federal agents that will be here in large numbers as well. So it's going to be a very heavily deployed event. And what about other local agencies? Will there be other local agencies as well? And do you have a sense for the the number? Yes, yes. So we do um, mainly from the, uh, the the motorcycle support needed for some of the the motorcade escorts and all that. Um, I don't have the on the top of my head the list of all the departments, but there is about I believe uh, over forty officers that will be assigned to help the SFPD and the California Highway Patrol with the the escorts so um and i do want to thank publicly those apartments and i'm sorry i don't have the on top of my head but um everybody's shorthanded and for them to be able to help out is it really means a lot to the city because that's a big part of uh, the work that needs to be done so i think i saw a newspaper article federal authorities um estimating that between Two to five thousand. This this was a couple months ago, though. Two to five thousand law enforcement personnel total would be in San Francisco. Is that does that jive with what you currently yes. think at this point? Yeah. That number definitely is, is 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 definitely in that ballpark. And you know, there's adjustments <coughs> made, last minute adjustments depending on the you know whatever intelligence we, we're getting about events that may or may not occur. So, but that that's definitely in the in the ballpark. And could you just give us a sense of what the division of labor will be between? SFPD, the local agencies, CHP, the federal authorities, just kind of what what each cluster of law enforcement agencies, what their differences in responsibility? Sure. So this is a, a national security, a national special security event, NSSE, which is the highest level of security. And that's because of the number of, of uh, dignitaries from the 21 economies, the 21 countries that will be here. Um, so the lead agency is, in terms of the security, is the United States Secret Service, and they are responsible for really the um, definitely the you know the president and, and his contingency of people and the vice president and her contingency, but also with the dignitary protection piece of this, that's that's pretty much their lift. Now we'll be a part of that, the SFPD, particularly the escorts and 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 the like. Uh, the footprint of the actual events where, that have already been made public in terms of where these events will be, Moscone being one of them. Uh, local law enforcement will be responsible for most, if not all, of the fixed posts, local and, and probably with some support from the Highway Patrol, uh, the, the fixed posting and all the things that will happen to secure the perimeters of that. Uh, if there's any uh, related events, you know, protests and the like, local law enforcement. So we will be responsible for that. And then um, any spontaneous things outside of what I just mentioned that comes up is going to be a local issue. But a lot of the work in terms of the, the personnel is really the security of the venues. It's, we have, has, has been made public, you know, pretty large footprints of these venues and they have to be secured. So that's going to be a, a combination of uniform officers from state and SFPD. And can you give us a sense of who's taking direction from whom? So, for example, local agencies from other jurisdictions, who will be giving them direction? Will it be SFPD? You know, hey, we could use 
additional support at this fixed post or whatever it may be, um, because you've got so many overlapping agencies at different levels of federalism, I'm just curious yes, uh, who's really giving orders. So yeah. the key to these types of events when you have so many you know, collaborative partners is the, the local agency is the lead. You know, as far as the, the, the overall event, the U.S. Secret Service is the lead. You know, they're given direction and particularly on the dignitary piece of this. But they are the lead agency in terms of uh, the security of this event. In terms of the, the tactics of the day-to-day, -day, let's say if there's a protest or let's say the, the footprint of the security, that'll be SFPD and we will be communicating with whatever other local law enforcement agencies that are helping out with their portion of this. Um, but everybody's communicating as well. So it, the communication is a big piece of this. A lot of moving parts, communication. But the day-to-day -day tactics, as, um, as you heard from you know, Sergeant Bouguera when he was talking, you know, we, we're, we're training and refreshing up on our policies and all that. And it's our role, SFPD, to coordinate that day-to-day, on-the-ground, tactical part of this operation. The bigger picture security, uh, we're all taking direction from the U.S. Secret Service on really the the bigger security plan because it's a national security event. But the local tactics will be us. And in other situations when we've worked with other law enforcement agencies, we've established memorandums of understanding to delineate responsibility and also to set out which policies and procedures will apply since every agency has its own rules and regulations it has to follow. Was there any MOU put in place for this event? There were some MOUs for the local uh, agencies, for instance, the uh, whatever departments are going to have motorcycle officers, just delineating responsibilities. If uh, So there, there was some. As far as MOUs with the U.S. Secret Service and the like, no. But with the local agencies, yes. And I, I don't remember exactly how many. I think there's about four local agencies, maybe a few more that are helping out. And I should probably know the answer to this, but I don't. But for the local agencies from other jurisdictions, what is the process, kind of what is the legal authority for them to come into, say, San Francisco and assist? Um, is it, does state law allow that? Do we, do you have to sign off on them coming in? How, how does that piece work? Well, they're, they're peace officers in the state of California, so they, they can, they can exercise their duties as peace officers anywhere in the state. Of course, the CHP has statewide jurisdiction. Right. Um, we're not doing this, but there are instances with these, this level of events where there, is, there are out-of-state officers that go to these <coughs> events. For instance, we got you know, invitations to participate in you know, uh, national conventions, either Democratic or, or Republican national conventions. You know, we, we opted not to do that, but in those types of situations, the officers are deputized usually federally deputized so they can exercise whatever that authority, that, that deputization uh, grants them. We did not do that for this particular thing. Right. We're just using state agencies and local Bay Area agencies. Uh, and also, um, just another component to this, in the event that the event triggers a level of uh, where mutual aid is called in, let's say like happened during the George Floyd civil unrest where we actually exercised mutual aid, then the state coordinates that and officers come from all over the state, depending on who's available and who's willing to do it. But they 
they are able to exercise their peace officer powers in the city and county of San Francisco. So then for the other local, I mean, I understand that they have a license from the state and they can work for any agency, but because they're working for another jurisdiction, there's no special step that you or anyone else had to take for them to be able to come and help us for APAC? No. No. Okay. And then last question, can you give us a sense for how this will impact um, just non-APAC coverage in other parts of the city? I know obviously a lot of folks will be reassigned from their normal responsibilities for this. And what is, what does that look like? Especially if you're in a district that's not near where the, the core APAC events are taking place. Because we're mobilizing that week, um, if, unless somebody's sick or, you know, has some type of emergency, everybody will be working. So actually the deployment in the stations is likely to be greater than what it is on a normal day. And the reason being that we don't know what the contingencies might be that will be needed. For instance, if we have uh, issues that grow in complexity or grow in the, in the need for uh, officers to respond, we want to have the ability to do that. So in the event that that doesn't happen, they'll be assigned to their, their district station. So all the sector cars will be filled. Um, we also have to plan for contingencies to take care of whatever else might happen in the city. For instance, let's say we have a critical incident, which usually takes a lot more personnel than, you know, just a typical call for service. We want to be prepared to do that without touching the officers designated to go to the, to the APAC uh, deployment. So we need to be prepared for that because the city has to keep running. And so the other part of this is in terms of the, the command structure, the um, emergency operations center, which DEM manages, will be stood up. And so that communications between the city agencies, police, fire, all the uh, DEM, all the emergency agencies um, is enhanced too because of that emergency operations center being stood up. And, and our, our department, uh, department operations center will be stood up. And then there's a federal communication center. So there's a lot of communications that has to happen to make sure that everything that you just asked about is coordinated. And we do believe that we're prepared with a mobilization because everybody will be working. Great. Thanks, Chief. Uh, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President. <clears throat> Carter Oberstone, thank you, Chief, for the report. And um, I really want to commend those officers that, uh, uh, you know, made the arrest with the, with the dangerous situation, with those explosives. I think uh, it really demonstrates the um, commitment that our officers have to safety, and, and I think they went above and beyond in that instance. So um, thank you for that report. Uh, do you have any updates on the uh, tenderloin kind of policing strategies as far as outcomes, whether any people have uh, accepted treatment, whether there have been any uh, improvements in that area? Yes, yeah, so there, there have been a few, and I, I don't have the exact number, but uh, there have been a few that, that actually have accepted treatment. Um, I think I reported a week or maybe t the two commission meetings. There's a um, nonprofit code tenderloin that's um, stood up on October 4th, and they have uh, what they're terming to be night navigators, and their job is to connect, you know, people that we come in contact with, particularly on the on the substance uh, disorder side to services. So that actually started off well. I uh, actually went out with them, I think, that first week, and me and uh, a squad of Tenderloin officers. That particular night, we got nine people uh, who agreed to get off the streets and go to shelter or go to services, which is the first step. 
Right. So that's a promising, you know, I, I, I can say that's promising, it's encouraging, you know, still a long way to go on that. Um, in terms of the services inside of the, the uh, county jail, we still, I mean, they get, you know, some services pretending, depending on how long they're there. Like if, they, if somebody's arrested for um, a use case or using in public and they have a warrant, they're gonna be there more days. So there's withdrawal services and there's other, you know, medical services depending on how long they're there. Most people are only there, though, for three or four hours until they sober up. And I'm really happy to hear about this code, too. I did read something about that. Is there a formal relationship with them as far as an MOU, um, or is this just kind of a partnership that happens whenever people are out there at the same time? Not with the police department, but they're coordinated through public health, who's at the table with us every day. Our, our Department of Public Health, who are at the table with us every day in, in the uh, DMAC planning and the meetings and all that. Um, so they don't have an MOU with us, but one thing that was really, really encouraging is they worked well with the officers, and I was out there to see it and be a part of that. Um, sometimes with um, navigators and you know workers like that, um, they have an aversion to walking down the street with a police officer, and, and I get the reasons why. You know, sometimes it causes them pain on the back end. You know, people don't want to be labeled a, you know, like they're telling on people and that type of thing. Uh, these particular folks were ready to, to actually work with us. It wasn't about telling on people, it was about this person needs help, what can we collectively do to get them to a better place? And that particular night I was out there, that worked really, really well. Like I said, nine people in the span of about three and a half hours was pretty amazing. Yeah. And I've, I had not seen that type of cooperation. Uh, and I've been out there many times, so it's encouraging. Right, I mean, I encourage that we, formalize the relationship uh, to whatever extent possible. If there is a way to uh, get an MOU in place, I think that that's the ideal. Um, I just, you know, remember when this strategy started, I, I believe it was sometime in June, right? Uh, May 30th, I believe so, it was the 29th. Uh, the, the impacts, you know, started in June. Um, I did a quick little review of, uh, you know, overdose deaths as a result of, there was a standard article that mentioned, you know, the uh, the increase in calls to 911 for uh, overdose-related incidents in the surrounding areas, something like 40% in Knob Hill. And, and you know, in June when we um, started this enforcement strategy, just, uh, Commissioner, uh, Commissioner, would you please let me finish? You could get on the uh, uh, agenda. You could also put agenda. your name on the queue. Let, let's let Commissioner Yanez finish, and then Commissioner Walker, um, if you want to speak as well, I'll call your name in the order that it appears in the queue. I think I have a right to speak about the uh, Chief's report and our existing policing strategies. Uh, so when this policing strategy started, we had a large coalition of folks, uh, you know, who filled up this room. Um, and brought us some information about the potential impacts that hard-handed law enforcement has um, in the surrounding areas and on overdoses as a result of a study that was done in Indianapolis, a city about the same size as San Francisco. Um, we are, we're up to 647 deaths. Uh, from January to May, there were 347, an average of 69.4. From June to September, uh, there have been 300, an average of 75. So somehow the uh, 
you know, the, the projection, the prediction, the uh, kind of assumption that a lot of that coalition or those providers in that coalition made that this heavy-handed policing strategy would have some unintended impacts has actually played out, right? And we, we're seeing the, the horror movie play out before our eyes, even though we have a lot of evidence that demonstrates that this is actually not necessarily improving um, our outcomes when it comes to both getting people into treatment or decreasing uh, the number of overdoses. At what point do we just decide that, or do we use this information to inform how we move forward with this strategy? Because it's my understanding that this is a strategy that you've decided to opt into and that you continue to support. So I'd like to know, considering the evidence at hand, uh, at what point do we revisit, rethink, and maybe redeploy our strategy in different areas, considering that there are, you know, state resources flooding that area and not necessarily having the impact that we want to have. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do. I have seen the same numbers that you just talked about, Commissioner, and I've read the report that you referred to. You know, October, I believe, there was an, a decrease. And I'm not here to say the decrease is because of this work, but I think we need to kind of play this out over time because as we have developed all the different components of, of, of the work that we're doing, which includes public health, which includes trying to, trying to address some of the underlying issues with, with housing and the instability of the people that, you know, very, you know, people that we're, we're trying to help, I think we got to give some of these things time to play out. It's not just policing. You know, we're at the table with all these other departments every day trying to figure this out. For instance, last night I'm out with, you know, Halloween night, probably two to 300 people, you know, right down, right across the street here, and most of them were, you know, users out, you know, doing what they do. And so the question is, you know, we're not going to arrest 300 people. We don't have the capacity to do that. Who else is out there besides us last night? Nobody. So the, the, the issue that I'm trying to drive, you know, if we're not at the table trying to figure this out together, um, shame on us. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. We do have a role in this because the public is also demanding that we do something about the open air drug use. And, you know, I, I don't know what other tool that we have other than to enforce the law at this point. But we are bringing all these other resources to the table and they are engaging, you know, the code tenderloin, the, the Department of Public Health, with everything that they bring to the table, uh, you know, the, the, the homeless outreach officers and, and not just the officers, but the workers who aren't police department employees, all that's at the table. And so we've got a lot of people indoors, you know, on top of this. We don't talk about that very, very often, but um, so these things, I think, have to be given a chance to play out. And my ask is just, you know, whether, you know, obviously there's some disagreement to the strategy, but I think we have to give it a chance and, and look at all the information. I'm not here to say that the reduction in October was because of these arrests, but I can't rule it out either because we've also taken 100,000 grams of fentanyl off the streets since May 29th. That's a lot of, uh, twice of what we did all of last year. So where would we be if we weren't doing that? And a lot of the people who are users are also possessors, and some of them are sellers. So 
I think we got to give this a chance and look at it holistically and see kind of what's working and what's not. But we're all, all, all at the table. So, you know, that's a good thing. Maybe we will tweak, tweak the strategy at some point. But I do think in order to do that, we have to build capacity on these other parts of this operation, including public health and some of the, the other underlying issues that I just mentioned. I'm going to encourage us to revisit uh, creating that lead program again. It sounds like the players are in place. It sounds like the relationships are there. And when you give the opportunity to, for users to proactively engage in treatment, it sounds like they take the opportunity. And if we have the treatment beds available, I think we should fill them. So I'm, I'm going to continue to push the lead program, uh, some type of uh, treatment in lieu of prosecution. Um, I understand diversion numbers are down in general, and there are a lot of slots there. So um, I hope we could continue to improve our outcomes in that area and formalize these relationships. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Byrne. Um, thank you, Vice President Carter Overstone. Um, Chief, um, there was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle this week um, about uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco being more aggressive and prosecutions uh, related to um, related to the south of market in the Tenderloin uh, neighborhood. Is the San Francisco police handing uh, involved in any of this activity, or is the DEA and the U.S. Attorney? In other words, those arrests are they coming from SFPD? So there, uh, there is collaboration between DEA and the SFPD in terms of um, dealing with some of what we're facing, particularly in the Tenderloin and Soma. Um, there, but there are separate lines. If we arrest a drug dealer and it meets the criteria for a federal adoption of the case, the U.S. Attorney is adopting a lot of those cases. Um, and in, and that, that part is not new. I, the U.S. Attorney, I think, is more aggressive in terms of adopting the cases. I think they've added more personnel to adopting some of these cases that meet their criteria. But those arrests are coming from both places. You know, we arrest. Uh, the DEA is doing arrests. We, we try to coordinate in terms of uh, the, some of the drug dealers that we've identified, uh, particularly the long-term investigations. We try to coordinate in terms of making sure that we are working in the same direction to get these drug dealers off the streets. But they do their arrests, and we do our arrests. And some of our arrests get adopted federally. There have been some uh, operations in terms of um, search warrants and things like that, interdictions, most of out of county, where the DEA and the SFPD have coordinated efforts on, on warrants, federal warrants as well, federal and state warrants, but um, they've yielded some positive outcomes. So, but they, they adopt what they adopt. If they don't adopt the cases, then they, these are state prosecutions, but if it meets the quantity or some of the uh, factors like somebody who's had prior uh, violent crime arrests and all that, it meets the federal adoption standard and they adopt in those cases. Um, thank you. Um, I was uh, driving along 7th Street and I noticed um, there are federal uh, um, personnel, uh, police type personnel on 7th. Ha have you been informed that they're actually going to, uh, patrolling their own property? Uh, yeah. down there now or, yes yes and yes. could you comment i mean if what i saw is true it's something that the it's long overdue i mean it's their property and they should be there in front of their own property chief and i, I i'm looking for your comment on that 
um, we're happy to see that. <laughs> so it, it, is, it is something that um, we've been trying to do for several years now to get more cooperation and support from the Federal Protective Services. You know, they had staffing challenges just like us, but it is federal property. And that responsibility really had fallen on the shoulders of the San Francisco Police Department on federal property. A um, couple of things have happened. As you described, they have really increased their deployment of their uniform protect, uh, federal protective services officers, and they made some environmental changes with fencing and the like that um, has been very helpful too. If you go down 7th Street or down Mission, Stevenson on the backside, there were just a lot of places to hang out, sit, and then that was a part of the issue. So they've changed the environment. They fenced some of that real estate off and made it harder for people to do that. And that's been helpful for them and us. So um, I can't tell you how long they're gonna keep this deployment up, but it's, it's been a welcome change for us. And this is something we've been asking for a long, for a long time. But back to you know, uh, Commissioner Yanez's, you know, um, some of his questions. I think the reason that this is happening, because we're all at the table, and they're not at our daily meetings, Federal Protective Services, but if what comes out of that meeting is, hey, let's keep following up with Federal Protective Services until we get some support, that's, that's actually is happening. And we're talking about it every day, and we're following up and all those things. So this collaboration is, is um, in my opinion, a lot of good has come out of this collaboration in terms of those types of issues. Um. As you can tell, I, I, I've been uh, roaming around. The other thing at uh, Union uh, Union Square uh, last Friday and Saturday, I saw an increased police deployment there. Is this an anticipation of uh, the holiday shopping season, or was it just I just happened to be there when there were lots of police? Or yeah, there uh, we have not. We we increased the deployment of. About six weeks or so ago, because we had a couple of uh, incidents where six, seven, eight people ran in stores and you know had their way, and we weren't able to catch them. So we did increase deployment. It's not where it was, you know, in 2021. We had all the chaos there. Uh, I think it's back up to about 16 officers, and we assigned a lieutenant to that unit uh, to oversee and coordinate. And he's done a, a really, really good job. So. I believe we're better coordinated, uh, and but it's not. It ha, it's unless there was an incident or something. We haven't increased it to you know 40 like we had a few years ago. But it is about 16, which is four about four times more than what it was prior to the event in 2021. Right, there didn't seem to be anything unusual going on. There just seemed to be a, a huge uh, police yeah. presence, and and finally, um, with regards to the APEC uh, summit that's coming in. I assume there will be increased police presence in Union Square because of the hotels in the area. Yeah, you, you will see increases all over the, the city. One of the things to, you know, the commissioner, Vice President Carter Overstone's uh, issues, we know there's going to be tens of thousands of people here visiting. We don't, you know, there may be some protests. Usually they are. Um, we want people to see that we're out there, you know, and we need people to see that we're out there. So you will see that. And will there be an increased presence in the Tenderloin and South of Market areas? Every uh, Tenderloin, Central, because we're, we're mobilized, they will have more resources than they typically have. Because everybody's working. So Sorry? They, they will have more resources than they tip, 
typically have because everybody's working, so we're mobilizing. So um, those officers are going to be out and about. So you're not bringing in, them in from sort of the outer stations like Terravel or Richmond or anything like that? No. The, um, the officers assigned to APEC are coming from all over the city, you know, the mobile field force squads and the fixed posts. But the station officers will work their stations if they're not assigned to APEC. Okay, so it's not like the Union Square thing a couple of years ago where you brought you brought officers in from outlying stations into Union Square. Right, it's not like that. Okay. And, 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 you know, I'll just say this, and just to, you know, we, we'll have uh, command staff working basically around the clock, so if command staff feels the need to redeploy, let's say the 10 to 1. I understand, yeah. but there's no, like, the, the Union Square deployment a couple of years ago, I mean, I, I met those officers, and most of the ones I met weren't from the you know from the area that covered Union Square. They were from every part of the city down there that time. Okay. Yeah. So no, they would be the the local officers, and uh, um, that's that's the plan unless they need to be redeployed. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yi. Thank you very much, there, uh, Vice President Carter Wilson. Uh, as I've been assigned to the courts down in um, McAllister, uh, been at a uh, great opportunity to visit the Tenderloin District along uh, up on Larkin and Eddy. Uh, I see changes there. Uh, still need work, but, uh, you know, I would say um, it's not 100% better, but it, it's a lot better than what it was when I uh, was driving through. Um, <clears throat> in regards to Tenderloin, um, last Saturday, October uh, 28th, there was a fatality. I was wondering if you have any updates on it, and um, uh, because it, I, I guess a person ran a red light and got struck coming down from the car coming down on High Street, and there was a fatality of pedestrian. Um, just wondering if that was a was that in a any reports on that? Yes, uh, Commissioner, there was in that. Actually, we believe stemmed from another incident, and um, which resulted in the individual driving the car to flee to try to get away, and that it was uh, when the collision occurred. So, really tragic situation. The person that was struck was, of course, just an innocent yeah. person walking down the street. Um, that is being fully investigated, and um, there was. Uh, did we make an arrest on that? I have to follow. It may be in my notes, but I believe we did make an arrest on that. Yes, there was an arrest on that. Okay, thank you. Uh, in regards to the APEC, uh, I know the deployment deployment of uh, all officers, uh, I guess it's all hands on deck, as they call it. I was just wondering whether the rest of the city, uh, do you have coverage, and what is your plan to ensure safety throughout the whole city? Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we do, and um, similar to uh, Vice President Carter Opstones. So everybody's working, and the officers that aren't assigned to a specific APEC function will be at their stations. Um, we, we will have a, you know, some contingencies 
in case there are critical incidents uh, that require beyond the normal uh, deployment. But because we're mobilized, the, the stations will be staffed. They, they will be fully staffed, actually, with their sector cars, and, and then probably a little bit extra, particularly for the, the stations that um, are normally have a very busy radio call load, Tenderloin and the, the Metro Division station. So that's the plan. And then we will redeploy if we need to. If something happens in some other part of the city outside of APEC, we will have the ability to redeploy officers. Um, just to follow up on the APEX and joint operation, did uh, the police department have any, uh, I guess, joint exercise with maybe uh, the fire department or other agencies so going through a scenario that something does happen yeah. and preparing us and stuff like that? Did, have you had yes, that exercise? Yes, we've done that, um, we've done that several times and um, both coordinated at the by the U.S. Secret Service and everybody's at the table and we do scenario-based tabletops. And um, as a city family, we've done the same thing just for the city departments, fire department and, and, and our Department of Emergency Management, DEM, coordinated that. Uh, I think we've done two actually. So yes, that is a big part of pre preparation for these types of events and we've done exactly that. And uh, last but not least, I want to thank the Urban Alchemies, uh, the community uh, liaison unit that keep us safe down there while I'm at, um, assigned to the courts. And also wish everybody, I guess, a great, uh, safe uh, APEC conference. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Sergeant, can you please take us to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item five, the chief's report, please approach the podium. Oh, man. Okay, uh, I hope you're going to have a good night. I feel that's what are we dealing with? I told yesterday, uh, it was awkward for me to, uh, okay, first of all, I'm winging this stuff, you know, when you say I, I wing it, because it's easy for me, it comes from the skies, what I say, so it's easy to wing it. Uh, uh, I told yesterday the board of supervisors, it's awkward for me to say, when are you going to understand that puppet shows is for kids only? You have to uh, face reality, guys. Come on. So, IPEC, excellent question from uh, Max and, uh, this, and others. Why do you need so much law enforcement if the guys coming to town are serving the people? There is a problem. That basically, if they are doing a good job for humanity, why do you need to make sure that there is no problem? Normally, it's not working. Huh? It doesn't make sense. So it means you are protecting what, I wouldn't say criminal activity, but it's very close. So we must rise here, understand what's going on, because this can go on forever. The circumvolution of talk on the system, it's not going to work for too long anymore. You, you get it here, there? Sorry, I need to talk there too. Okay, Chief, uh, look, I don't know what you can do. Look, understand this, please. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> That's it. Thanks.
Ah, good evening again. I firstly want to say I'm glad to hear that we're actually going to enforce the law for once in the city. And I'm also glad to know that we're getting people into treatment, that they're accepting it as well. Um, I also agree with Commissioner Walker that we should agendize items before speaking on it, but my question to you, Chief, is is there a way for the, because I'm also upset at Oberstone for taking all my questions around APEC, but is there a way for communities to assist SFPD while all officers are being brought forward to help? That's my one question for you, if you can. Um, so thank you for letting me speak. My name is Mark Bruno. I recently encountered pleasantly, of course, Chief Scott at a forum on crime in North Beach, and we discussed very briefly there um, uh, one thing that would help with the homeless. So I've worked with the homeless for over 22 years. I used to work in the district attorney's office, and um, I used to be head of a commission here, um, the board of the graffiti advisory board with Ed Lee. Uh, at any rate, um, I think there's a way we can, without thinking about those who are super involved with drugs or super involved with alcohol or other crime, that those people like me who are volunteers, I work for St. Vincent de Paul Society for 22 years as a volunteer, um, can, with the help of the police, um, be used as volunteers to work with those people. And we do it. I mean, we do it successfully. And a lot of groups do it. And the point is, we shouldn't forget that many of the people on the street, people who I admittedly mostly choose to work with, because I'm afraid of people who are uh, on drugs. So if I, if I, I do work with some people who are greatly involved with drugs, but when I'm with them, they're not. So um, the people who I mostly work with in my cohorts in North Beach are people who we just got somebody inside, a, a transgender woman who's a wonderful person. We've known her for five years. Never, ever wanted alcohol or drugs. I mean, she's like an amazing, uh, but not atypical person who lives on the street. And the hot team, when they were finally called in, and the police, felt, as one of the police officers said, she's like an oasis to find this person because there aren't that many people like this. But I would say at least 30 or 40% of the people who, we, who are living out there are facing mental challenges. And we shouldn't forget them for the much more difficult cases that the police need to work with and professional mental health people need to work with. There's, there's a lot of room for volunteers to work with regular folks who find themselves homeless. Thank you for your help. you leave. Thank you. That was a great comment. I actually just have a question. I'm sorry, Commissioner Yanez. Were you, were you saying that law enforcement is the reason why people who overdose overdose? I, I must have spaced out or something. I just didn't understand the point that you were making, and I was wondering if you wouldn't just reiterate it again, because it sounded to me like you were saying it's law enforcement's fault or somehow they're doing their job is increasing overdoses. That's what I heard, but I could have spaced out. And so I just wanted a little to understand that because that doesn't seem right to me. Uh, hi there, Alan Burradell. I hadn't planned on talking, but I'll follow up uh, from, from this prior speaker here. And uh, I think that's what we did here. We heard that as a result of escalating law enforcement, that 
we're finding more overdoses. I think that's what we heard up here. And this wasn't on the calendar. Nobody's here to prepared to talk about that, nor are any of you commissioners. But that's a very important topic. But it's just a little bit of absurdity that gets thrown out here in this commission meeting on something that's not even on paper. So nobody's really prepared to address it. But I'll give a stab at it and just say that we have tents on the streets. We have street conditions where drug users are protected. Drug dealers are protected. They all happen to be 90 plus percent from one Central American country. And everybody thinks it's a big mystery why people are dying on the streets. Well, I'll tell you what is not a mystery to most San Franciscans. Commissioner Yenes, and it's that additional law enforcement is causing overdose deaths. That's not happening. Try something else. Thank you. Good evening. Um, I was just uh, informed by um, Officer Baldwin that they're going to be fixing the digital poster boards, that it's all the district stations. So I'm hoping that I can go in these district stations and see the digital poster boards displayed in each other lobby district stations. So I'm still waiting for that. And thank you for answering that. Today is the day of the dead, you know, uh, the tomorrow and today. And we're honoring all the, the, our ancestors and the homicides and the, all the people that have died and their spirits, my son being one. I have his pictures placed at each um, visual that they have in all of the places. So I take my pictures along with all the other unsolved homicides um, that's on this paper. And I'm pretty sure other mothers and fathers are bringing their pictures to the graveyard and doing displays up there. So I'm just so glad that there is a Day of the Dead. I bring these pictures with me because I want people to see what I have to go through every day. This is not, when I come here, this is not easy to do. I'm just used to doing it now. I'm just used to doing it. But I feel every part of my son's body and his mind. I leave with his decaying body here. I want people to know that my son was full of life. He was a young boy who was murdered and still today no justice. Still today the case is unsolved. I don't know about the, uh, are my, who is my homicide inspector right now. I don't, I'm not sure if they change up because they keep changing. Thank you. For members of the public, would like to make, I'm sorry, for members of the public that have any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Abercasa, you can call the anonymous 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. Commissioners, that is the end of public comment. Line item six, DPA director's report discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. So currently we, oh. 
So currently we have uh, 668 cases that have been open so far this year, uh, and we have closed 610 cases. We have 316 cases uh, currently pending, uh, and we've sustained 48 cases so far. We have 21 cases whose investigations have gone past the nine months period, and of those uh, 21 cases, 18 of those cases are, are told. Uh, there are seven cases that are pending uh, decision and outcomes from the commission, and there are 87 cases, cases pending outcomes from uh, the chief's office. Uh, we've already uh, in, brought in and accepted the consent calendar. I won't go through any of those numbers. They're online if folks wish to look through the specific numbers. In terms of the weekly trends so far from this week and last week, uh, the highest uh, percentage of allegations that have come into the office have been 14% uh, for neglect of duty, uh, alleging that the officers failed to take required action as asked from the public. Uh, the complete breakdown of the 85 allegations that have come in this week are, as always, listed online at the DPA website. In terms of the district break breakdown, uh, the highest precinct uh, this week came from Mission Station, station uh, over an incident where there's an allegation that the officers used unnecessary force on a juvenile during an arrest that resulted in injuries. The full breakdown of the allegations and the precincts and divisions is also online on the website. Uh, in terms of audit this week, uh, we have sent over the draft of the last audit and we're waiting for responses from the department. We have no cases that are in closed session this week, uh, but we also have here uh, in the audience today, Senior Investigator Brent Bajan and uh, our Chief Deanna Rosenstein, who is also here with us today. Um, for folks that are interested in contacting the agency, you can contact us directly at sfgov.org or you can contact us at the office directly at 415-241-7711. I'll reserve my comments for the agenda items that include uh, information from DPA until those agenda items are called. That concludes my report for this week. Uh, Commissioner uh, Kevin uh, Benedicto. Thank you. Um, just a, a quick question. I was looking at, at, the, at the consent calendar items, and I noticed there's a, a clear breakdown there between SFPD and SF Sheriff's Office referrals. The, I guess I, I should know this. For our weekly numbers, like the 668 or the overall numbers and the 592, are those the combined numbers, or those reflect only the SFPD numbers? Those are not the combined numbers. The, okay. Those numbers specifically are the numbers for the police department. The numbers and information for Sheriff's Department is managed and handled separately just to avoid the, conf the confusion. So any numbers that I'm repeating here and on those items, especially those found in the agenda items, are specifically for SFPD exclusively. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Sergeant, uh, public comment? Members of the public, they would like to make public comment regarding line item six, the DPA director's report. Please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. 
Line item seven, commission reports, discussion, and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determine whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and scheduling of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Commissioner Walker. It's on. Um, I would li actually like to um, ask that there be an agenda item on the, the APEC coordination for next week, if we could get it just to update the public and have it more clear that we're able to discuss it. Um, I also would like to have an agenda item to um, define for the commission what it says on the calendar, which commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Um, I think we need to really get clearer so the public is informed of when we're gonna be discussing and opinionating on things uh, rather than just getting um, crime information from the chief during his report or our report. So I would like to have that agendized as well. That's it. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. All right, thank you, um, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, just a couple of updates for me. Uh, last, uh, since our last meeting, uh, Commissioner Walker and I attended the quarterly officer of the month ceremony that was held here at City Hall. Uh, and I'd like to congratulate those officers. They were congratulated as well uh, for really going above and beyond the call of duty in their work um, and their well-deserved recognition there. Uh, Additionally, I'd like to uh, note to members of the public that uh, Department General Order 7.01, which you've heard myself and Commissioner Yanez talk extensively about, we also had uh, guests from our Juvenile Commission come and talk about it. Uh, a draft is now posted on the SFPD website uh, for public comment. You heard uh, the last time we had a DGO up here, uh, DBA's Director of Policy, Janelle Kaywood, talk about that's a really valuable process. So if you have specific comments about that general order, you can make those comments and you will get an individualized response from subject matter experts. Um, it can be a very uh, helpful way to provide input. Uh, that general order, 7.01, for those who don't know, is an update to our general order on dealing with juveniles. It's a very important general order. It's re revising it as the first of uh, part of many steps to expand um, a pre-arrest diversion program that I know Commissioner Yanez and I are both strongly committed to, as well as clarifying what our post-arrest diversion looks like. Uh, when the commission met about it recently, there was strong uh, support among the commission about expanding our diversion options for youth. So I do encourage members of the public to look at that general order. Thank you. Uh, just a couple of updates for me. Um, Recently, Commissioner, uh, myself, Commissioner Walker, and Commissioner Benedicto interviewed a number of candidates for a policy analyst position for the commission. Uh, we, we found someone who we thought would be an excellent candidate for the job. However, we are not able to extend that person an offer because the mayor froze the position. Um, I had made a promise to Ms. Brown um, that once we hire this person, the first thing that I would assign the person to do is to put together a presentation on our uh, reward policy and look at what other jurisdictions are doing, put a presentation together so we know 
um, what what best practices look like today. Our department hasn't hasn't paid out an award in over, I believe over a decade, um, and Miss Brown comes to every meeting and speaks passionately not just about her own experience and her own loss, but but victims of all uh, unsolved homicides. Uh, I because it doesn't appear that we'll have a policy analyst in the near future. Um, I would like to agendize for a future meeting in the near future, a presentation um, on what other jurisdictions are doing in terms of their reward policies and any recommendations um, that, any recommended reforms to our own policy. Um, some, some aspects of our policy are very restrictive at, at first blush at least in terms of what qualifies someone to actually receive an award. And if people out there have information that would be valuable in an extremely serious crime, they, they should be incentivized appropriately to come forward. So uh, I, I'm going to ask that, that the department and the, depa uh, the, police, the police department and the Department of Police Accountability work together on this um, and, and inform the public and the commission on this important issue. The other thing I'll just address that has come up, uh, uh, Commissioner Walker just addressed it, and it was echoed by certain uh, members of the public, um, is about whether something is properly um, properly addressed by the commission is properly agendized. And I, this is something that we've actually discussed recently, but just a friendly reminder, for example, in the Chief's report, commissioners are not confined to asking questions about issues that the chief affirmatively raised in his report. What we are confined by are the words of the agenda, which notify the public in advance of the meeting of what, what the topic of discussion will be. So, for example, the chief's report covers any public safety concerns. It covers any incidents or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. So when Commissioner Yanez raised the issue of law enforcement practices and procedures as it relates to the fentanyl crisis, that is clearly an incident occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. It also is a public safety concern. That is why, for example, when Commissioner Byrne brought up a chronicle, a recent chronicle article, um, that was also well within uh, what was agendized on item number five. Um, there's been a recent effort to, I think, use um, state public meeting laws to silence dissenting view on the commission. Um, I, I think it's a really unfortunate practice, and I think it's really misguided. If folks disagree, if commissioners disagree with what another commissioner said, I think that's great. It's great to have diversity of viewpoint, and the best way to address that is to put your name in the queue and explain why you think that person is wrong. And ultimately, the public will decide who has the better of ar the argument. But I think it's a dangerous path when we try to silence open and frank public discussion on matters of intense public interest that have clearly that clearly fall within the notice on the agenda. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone, and thank you for that um, clarification. Um, I'm. I wasn't available, unfortunately, as a result of some technical, well, as a result of, I wasn't available physically to be at the meeting last month, uh, but I do wanna uh, 
convey to the chief uh, my appreciation for the CIT presentation. Um, and I want to encourage us to replicate that program across every single unit in our department and increase staffing as soon as possible because that is definitely the best practice that we have in this department. And I, I cannot um, celebrate their efforts and outcomes enough. So um, I really appreciated that presentation a few weeks ago and needed to say that publicly. I also um, want to acknowledge that it is uh, the first day of Indigenous American Heritage Month. We hear some drumming downstairs because uh, there is a ceremony going on downstairs. Tomorrow is Dia de los Muertos. Um, and it, it, there is a big celebration in the mission every year that I know is supported by the police department and the mission station, and we rarely have incidents. Um, but I do, uh, you know, thank Mrs. Brown for, for bringing up the fact that these uh, opportunities for people to, to publicly celebrate the lives of, of their lost ones are, are something to celebrate and part of the culture and fabric of San Francisco. So. Um, I do want to make sure that folks are um, aware of those developments. Uh, as far as my report goes, uh, I, be, I do want to agendize the community policing manual, which uh, has been in development. I believe that DPA has uh, been perusing it and uh, providing some feedback or is going to generate some feedback. I will also be chiming in on that. It is a great piece of, uh, it's a great manual, it's a great document. And I know that on November 2nd, we're also supposed to be having the district um, station uh, community policing plan. So I would like to agendize that for um, as soon as possible so that we could uh, discuss our progress towards uh, making, advancing those uh, metrics in those plans. Uh, in addition, I've been asked by the Youth Commission, the Juvenile Probation Commission to uh, step out of this meeting next week for a second and provide an update at the Juvenile Probation Commission meeting about our progress towards the pre-booking program, towards establishing a pre-booking program for juveniles. Uh, there have been meetings, uh, ongoing meetings with the Community Assessment and Referral Center. We've made some progress and uh, the Juvenile Probation Department Commission, uh, I believe, will be putting out a resolution uh, uh, supporting and encouraging the city to adopt the pre-booking program. Um, in addition to that, I, um, I, I just want to encourage people, if there was any misunderstanding about what my um, comment earlier was, to look at the American Journal of Public Health, March edition, we can't arrest our way out of um, ODs, the drug bus paradox. Uh, please read that paper and then uh, you will understand where my comments came from. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you very much there, Vice President Carter. I just uh, want to just report on the, the town hall meeting on October the 19th um, regarding the officer involved shooting at the Chinese consulate. Uh, on October the 9th. It explained a lot when you get to see the, the body-worn camera. So I thank the chief and uh, his team for putting that forward. I know in my community there was a lot of uh, questions and unanswered questions, and we have to wait until the investigation happens and come out and report it. Uh, as you saw, the person uh, reported was a, a person armed with a, with a gun. 
second time person armed with a gun. So the responding officer or the sergeant respond and um, you know, uh, if you have time, watch the um, uh, town hall meeting October the 19th, uh, explain it all. I, uh, again, I want to thank the team for that and explain and set us all, a lot of fears in our community what was happening over there. Uh, thanks again. Thank you, Chief. Sergeant, could you take us to public comment, please? At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding line item seven, the commission reports. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Uh, Alan Burrell. Um, the the I don't think there's anyone in this room that is suggesting that we should censor any commissioner. Uh, that's quite the contrary. We're talking about when the comments are made. Are they made? after they're agendized or not. That's simply it. It's not complicated. Um, we want the public to have a chance to address something like that. It's not that we don't want to hear it. In fact, I would encourage the commissioner to come forward with that study and we'll have a nice talk about it. Why not schedule that? Why not put that on the agenda? Uh, there's no way to dispel that off the cuff. None of us came prepared for that. But you have the benefit of sitting up there after having read that study and then lectured all of us, that's not fair. That's not the way this is designed. And to say that it's censorship is a double insult. You see that? So that's really all I have to say. I'd give that some thought. Thank you. And that is the end of public comment. Line item eight, discussion and possible action to adopt revised department general order 5.01, use of force policy and the proper control of a person, which reflects changes made to the tire deflation devices. Discussion and possible action. So we, oh, we have uh, Lieutenant Stephen Jonas here. If there are any questions, I believe we've discussed this, but we're prepared to answer any questions or um, have a discussion on it as well. Uh, we have discussed this policy quite a bit in the last few months. Um, I, for folks' recollection, this was an issue where uh, there was two parallel policy revisions happening at once. There was a DGO revision um, to clarify standards um, for when officers can preemptively use spike strips. Uh, and the commission also separately took action because the department had suspended their use pending the policy revision. The commission took action uh, to immediately reallow their use pending the DGO revision. I want to commend Lieutenant Jonas uh, for, for his role in revising the policy. I also want to commend uh, Janelle Kaywood for her work on it. But in particular, I think Lieutenant Jonas gave a presentation that was grounded in data and evidence. And the 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 evidence was really overwhelming that use of spike strips preemptively was an unmitigated good um, in terms of arrests, recovery of firearms, and almost no negative consequences and allows us to avoid dangerous chases. Um, I, I just think it was a, a really great example of providing the commission with, with the data that it needs to make informed policy judgments. So thank you so much for that. Um, and 
I will make a motion. Oh, wait, uh, I'm sorry. I see Commissioner Benedicto, but also Chief wanted to just ask you, will there be any, will the department be requesting any delay in implementation? The uh, only thing that this will require is training to, and some people already have had the training and, and they are using it, but training and I will, um, think that we can probably, uh, we do need a delay because APEC is going to put a damper in. So I, I would say 60 days. And, I don't know. Steve, you have any, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, Chief, uh, thank you. Um, I think at this point we already have several units that are trained in the policy, basically uh, spearheaded this tactic, um, and they are back actively using it. Um, I do think there is a training period that is going to be required. Um, it's hard for me to speak to what that period's going to be with APEC and uh, the need to put together the training materials. But uh, the bulletin that was issued after the commission resolution does address that the units that already are uh, trained and implementing the tactic are reauthorized and other uh, officers uh, will be authorized as soon as they have undergone that training. Right, and if I recall, the DGO also has that language that you have to have training in the specific type of TDD in order to deploy it, right? That is uh, regarding the type of equipment that they're using. Different right. uh, types of tire deflation devices would, would need different training, right. you know, uh, product A versus product B. Um, <clears throat> not so much the tactics of use during a pursuit. I, I see. Perfect. Yeah. So even if you had the training, if you that makes sense. Okay, perfect. So... So it seems like this could be the rare case where we could implement without a delay because we already have the resolution plus additional guidance from the department on tactics, but I'll defer to the department on this. Uh, yeah, so I, let's, let's, if I could ask the commission, because of APEC, we're going to be, a lot of the officers will, won't be working their regular assignments, so... Um, at least a 30-day just to get us past the next, you know, two weeks with APEC. Okay. And then uh, I agree with you on that. I mean, I think it, the, the language is clear in terms of you got to be trained before you deploy this. So we should be okay there. And then we'll train, you know, as, as, as we do, as we train. All right. In that case, I will make a motion to adopt the DGO with a 30-business-day delay in implementation. And I see Commissioner Benedicto. Great. Uh, thank you, um, Vice President Carter Oberstone. I just wanted to confirm, uh, you know, we, we, there, there were no other changes made to the DGO other than the tire deflation device. And I saw there were some slight cleanup in the way we abbreviated OC or DGO throughout, but there are no other changes that, that came out of meeting confer from the, the version that we Correct. Had. Just okay. the addition of the section on tire deflation devices. Okay, great. Thank you. That's all. Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much, sir, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, again, I, I guess if we do pass it there today, uh, it's a uh, delay not to be used if, in, if necessary during the APEC. Do I understand that correctly? No. I, I'm sorry. What was the question, Commissioner? Uh, the, the use of a uh, uh, tire de deflation device, will that be in operation to be used for I guess you, units that are qualifiedly trained during the APEC conference? They, they are already authorized. Those they're officers they're all are already authorized. Okay. So if 
if um, anybody that's trained can, can, can use it right now. Okay. All for right. the commission's uh, resolution. So. Just out of curiosity, what is the, I guess, the amount uh, units or officers qualify for this? Do you well, have? The specialized, the, the plainclothes units all have been. Okay. And then. Go ahead, Chief. Oh, yeah, I was just about to say, but the, the uniform officers, like in routine patrol or regular patrol, haven't used it in this fashion. So that those are the officers that we need to be trained. But specialized, we're, we're already doing it. So. And since there's so many law um, officers in San Francisco at that time, California Highway Patrol, do they have authorization to use it if necessary in San Francisco? They have their own policies as far as uh, pursuit intervention, you know, and I believe they do have spike strips and, you know, pit maneuvers. Uh, so, but they have to abide by their own policies. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief. Thank you. Is there a second on the motion? I'll second it. For members of the public, they'd like to make public comment regarding line item eight. Please approach the podium. And there is no public comment on the motion. Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. You have six yeses. Line item nine, presentation and discussion on the increase of use of force on people of color at the request of the commission. Discussion. Good evening, commissioners, um, Vice President Carter Robestone, Chief Director Henderson. I'm Catherine McGuire. I'm the Executive Director of the Strategic Management Bureau. Um, we do have a few slides giving background for the public on use of force more generally, and that is in alignment sort of with some of the recommendations from the USDOJ that we uh, continue to ensure that the public understands um, what we are talking about when we talk about use of force. Uh, and in addition to that, um, Jason Cunningham will talk about the actual numbers reflected in the quarterly activity and data report. And uh, Sergeant Rivera from the Professional Standards and Principal Policing Unit will also, and our CRI team, will also uh, talk through some of the approaches that uh, the department has implemented to try to um, reduce biases or uh, disparate use of force, among other types of contact. So with that, I'll just start with some background on use of force. Uh, generally for the public, I'm not going to purport myself to be the legal minds on this commission, but uh, I'll cover very high level general information. 
So according to the National Institute of Justice, there's no standard and universally agreed upon definition of use of force for law enforcement agencies, the many thousands of which there are in the United States. Um, and even more generally, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, I'm gonna move over to this mic. <laughs> the International Association of Chiefs of Police defines use of force as the amount of effort required by police to compel compliance by an unwilling subject, excuse me, and the U.S. Supreme Court in Graham v. Connor established that those evaluating whether a use of force was reasonable should consider only the information known to the officer who applied the force at the time of the incident. So these are very general kind of background information, just the fact that there's no real universal set of rules, that um, there's a standard industry definition, so to speak. And then, of course, just the very um, high-level guidance that the Supreme Court provides with respect to uh, how use of force should be sort of considered in hindsight. The, of course, SFPD's highest priority being, I'm just gonna read this because it is directly from our use of force policy. You all know it very well. The public should hear it again. Um, the San Francisco Police Department's highest priority is safeguarding the life, dignity, and liberty of all persons. Officers shall demonstrate this principle in their daily interactions with the community they are sworn to protect and serve. The department is committed to accomplishing this mission with respect and minimal reliance on the use of force by using rapport building communication, crisis intervention, and de-escalation tactics before resorting to force whenever feasible. This is just to say, and then we go into a little bit more detail here about um, the use of force policy, but this is just to say and demonstrate the uh, more restrictive and more uh, robust uh, effort that SFPD and the commission and DPA have made to ensure that our for use of force policy is not only um, uh, tighter than some of the other definitions of uses of force out there in the law enforcement communities, but also provides for documentation and uh, analysis and really a deeper understanding of when and why and how we use force. And as you can see, there's, there's additional sort of information for um, the public from our policy here that uh, use of force must be for a lawful purpose and in the following circumstances um, force may be used, very shorthand, uh, to effect a lawful arrest, detention, or search, to overcome resistance, or to prevent escape, to prevent the commission of a public offense in defense of others or in self-defense, to gain compliance with a lawful order, and to pre or to prevent a person from injuring themselves. However, an officer is prohibited from using lethal force against a person who presents only a danger to themselves and does not pose an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to another person or officer. And with that background, um, you know, we've, the data that we present in the 
QADR, the Quarterly Activity and Data Report, really demonstrates sort of our levels, of, uh, the amount that we report on use of force. And uh, Jason is here to talk a little bit about that big quarter four increase in uh, rates of disparity between uh, African-American and white individuals. And so I'm going to hand it over to him, and that is really the core of this presentation today. Get right up there. Uh, good evening, uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone, Commissioners, Chief Scott, uh, Director Henderson. Uh, uh, my name is Jason Cunningham. I'm the program manager out of the Professional Standards and Principal Policing Unit, where I lead the business analysis team. Uh, we are charged with, among other things, the generation and publishing of our quarterly activity and data report. Uh, so we'll spend a little bit of time going over the per capita racial disparity comparison data point that is calculated and provided in the Quadar. The specific question that was asked of us was to take a look at what contributed to the increase in that number uh, with use of force and African-Americans in reporting in the fourth quarter of 2022. Uh, to get there, we're going to do a quick overview of this particular chart, as I think it's the one that stood out, uh, along with what goes into it and how it's calculated. Uh, first, this chart is not the actual per capita disparity per race or ethnicity. Let me say that one more time. This chart is not the actual per capita disparity per race or ethnicity. That information is actually found elsewhere in the report. Uh, I think it's page 45, 45 of the fourth quarter report. Uh, instead, this chart shows citywide use of force data from Q1 to Q4 2022. Uh, individuals receiving force are listed as black or African American nine to 25 times more often than white individuals when comparing the population per 1,000 residents of each. That's a long sentence. So put another way, this number can be referred to as the number of times larger number. That is, in the fourth quarter, 25 is the number of times larger, the, larger the per capita number for black individuals is as compared to the white individuals per capita number. Drop my pen. This number measures the difference between black per capita disparity number and white per capita disparity number. This is done through simple arithmetic, uh, which is the division of the black per capita number, black per capita disparity number, with the white per capita number. This means that the number of times larger number, 25 in this case, can increase under a few different conditions given that it is based on two per capita numbers that can change in either direction every quarter. Uh, I have five listed. I'll read them real quick. Uh, the black per capita number uh, can increase while the white per capita number stays the same. Uh, you can have the black per capita number increase and the white per capita number increase. However, the black per capita number increases more you can have the black per capita number remaining the same while the white per capita number decreases. You can have the black per capita number and the white per capita number decrease. However, the white per capita number decreases more. Or you can have the black per capita number increase 
and the white per capita number decrease. So in this case, scenario four played out in the fourth quarter of 2023. In real numbers, uses of force against black and white individuals decreased between Q3 and Q4. If you take a look at the chart on the bottom left, we see that in red, moving from left to right per row. Both counts decreased. However, the count for white individuals decreased much more dramatically. When calculating our per capita disparities for Q4 2023, we find for black individuals, we're just going to take the number of uses of force, that's your red number, you're going to divide it by the number of individuals in the population, your blue number, multiply that by 1,000, we'll give you your per capita number. It's one point, or I'm sorry, 3.189. For white individuals, we have 44 uh, divided by 339,050. Multiplying that by 1,000 gets us to 0.129 uh, per capita for white individuals. To then find the number of times larger, it's simple arithmetic of 3.189 divided by 0.129 gets you to 24.72, which we round up to 25. Next slide. So we pulled in an another chart from 2023 just to uh, illustrate a different example. So this plays out a little bit differently in 2023. Uh, in this uh, case, our fifth option is noted, where the black disparity increased slightly and the white di disparity decreased. So in this case, again, red number divided by blue, by blue number multiplied by 1,000 for both black individuals and white individuals dividing the black per capita number with the white per capita number gets us to 21 or 21.22, which we round down to 21. I'll pause here because that's a lot, but I am open to any thoughts, questions, uh, or I can continue. I think you should just finish the presentation and then we'll uh, ask any questions at the conclusion. Okay, slide. Uh, so I was also asked to produce some statistics on use of force applied to uh, homeless individuals and individuals that are under the age of 18. Uh, you'll note we have the raw count located on the chart. Uh, percentages didn't make it into the slides, I apologize. Um, by percentage, the numbers on the charts, uh, you'll, for homelessness, uh, you'll see between 14 and 11 percent. And for juveniles, uh, between 4.5 and 3.5 percent. So I'll be followed by Sergeant Rivera. Good evening. This part is to address some of the department's commitments to reducing some of these disparities. More pointed to your question, Commissioner Yanez. The department takes a comprehensive approach, not to mention that this topic is complex and challenging, asked across the country, law enforcement agencies everywhere. This department's commitment includes several initiatives. We'll start with the benchmark dashboard. This is a new way of uh, collecting expanded data um, regarding all our stops. This is a forward-thinking, proactive approach to anticipated upcoming state legislation, things the state requires for us to report. It helps us understand both in some internal and external factors to some of the disparities. And a lot of this data tends to inform policy changes. Some of that data was used when we revised 5.01. It's several different iterations. Uh, it was partly used in the development of the uh, DGO 5.17, which was the bias-free 
policing policy, as well as our own internal uh, 1107 policy, which is the prohibit of, prohibiting of discrimination and harassment uh, and retaliation. Some of our diversity efforts, uh, a lot of effort went into creating our diversity strategic plan. This was a CRI, the Collaborative Reform Initiative, um, recommendation 89.1. That was initiated through a working group where objectives and met metrics were developed with the goal of institutionalizing the hiring and retention of a diverse uh, and high-performing workforce. The plan addresses diversity at the department level as well down to the unit level and through, um, through the ranks. The chief's advisory forms have recently been reinvigorated. Um, a lot of effort has gone into preparing those applications, setting those forms up. Those applications have been sent out. Many have been received and they're in, in review uh, by the chief and his staff. There's an educational component to understanding some of the diversity and understanding how to approach um, disparities. One part of that education are the, the, the um, emphasis on these sojourn trips where the, the students or the, the participants um, engage in civil rights tours. Um, this, this is all part of the, the policy education, accountability and training approach. In regards to training, one of the aspects is this bias sync training the department has engaged in for the past two years. It's a two-year study, began in 2021, so it is concluding this year with a report to follow. And then further in understanding the disparities, understanding that the department has somewhat limited resources and it would behoove us to reach out to larger academic institutions better prepared to help understand. You can see here there's a list of several academic institutions. These are not exactly what you call lackluster institutions. Rather, these are high-performing, high-level institutions. You can see uh, UC Berkeley, Stanford, University of Chicago, University of California, San Francisco, as well as uh, some specialized institutions, the Center for Police and Equity, which we have engaged in with the past. And I think they have done a presentation to this commission and we are re-engaging them for a second round of their evaluation of the department and some of the progress that we've made. That's the end of the department's presentation. I believe myself, Director McGuire, and Mr. Cunningham are available for your questions. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President Carter Overstone. Thank you for the presentation. Um, for the public's uh, information and clarification, uh, this is all RIPA self-reported data that we're relying this on, right? Uh, actually, no. Use of force data is collected separate from the mandates of the RIPA board. So use of force is collected under DGO 5.01, which was promulgated by this commission. It has all the data points that are required for collection, uh, and we use that data to calculate these uh, numbers. Great. That's even better. Um, what, what is the department's analysis of why this continues to increase. So 
I think you've probably asked the hardest question in social science and one of the hardest questions that we ask ourselves. Determining the why based off of these data points and the hundreds, thousands of others that flow through our offices uh, does require a level of analytical capacity that generally doesn't exist in municipal government. This is part of the reason why we do have um, a slide showing the partnerships that we work with. Uh, Center for Policing Equity um, has a room full of PhDs that will help us do math to help get after a why. And oftentimes their, their answer might not get fully to statistical significance in kind of the, the academic parlance, but they might not be able to get it to a full why. Um, it's a challenge. Um, one of the things I say about the Quadar is it's generally a report that's describing what and where and how many. It's not really a report that talks about why, um, partially because of the challenges we have with analytical capacity at our level. And so what have our partnerships with these very highly regarded university institutions indicated is our issue? I am not prepared to pitch what those said off the top of my head. I do know that a report from the Center of Policing Equity was completed in 20, I want to say 19, perhaps 2020, that was shared with the commission. I know that the Center for Policing Equity is currently undergoing another round of what it calls its city report that should be coming out in the next 12 to 24 months. Um, that's where I am on those particular uh, analyses. Chief? The um, report that Director uh, Manager Cunningham is referring to, there is some analysis, and that, that report looked at use of force and stops as well, um, is my recollection of it. Um, there were some recommendations, which I believe we implemented, most if not all of them, in terms of uh, things that would give us better data to determine some of the whys. We don't have all the answers, Commissioner. You know, we, we've, we've worked with, you know, Spark Lab at Stanford. We've worked with Cal, uh, California, um, not California, I'm sorry, the Center for Policing Equities. We don't really have the answer to the whys in terms of some of these disparity issues, but what we do know is that some of the policies that we put in place has reduced both the rate of disparities, particularly in, against the uh, black African-American demographic and use of forces overall. So we, we do believe there's something there in terms of that issue. The hope is that between um, the things that have been mentioned in this presentation, the dashboard and some of the other things we're doing, um, we can call that out further. Offending rates are you know, part of the equation as well. You know, the, who are the offenders? What's the demographic? Being able to call out self-initiated activity as opposed to calls for service from the public is another factor that I think we've gotten better at in terms of understanding how many of these calls that we engage with this demographic pool are calls from the public as opposed to officer self-initiated activities. And so those things are all in the works and the dashboard hopefully will answer at least the the what part of some of the questions, and then we can get maybe to some of the why. Like for instance, how many of our activities are command directed? You know, if we're saying 
go out and do enforcement in the Tenderloin on users or dealers or whatever. That's a com command-directed enforcement. It's not saying who, it's saying enforce on the activity. Uh, how much that plays into this, we didn't know before because we weren't capturing that data. This dashboard, we will capture that data. So I do think there are some revelations that will be learned and gleaned from what we've put in place. I think it's gonna take at least some time to have a comparison point and data points to, to really understand what it means. But I'm really hopeful that some of these, these uh, implementations will, will help us get to the why. Like, like the command directed activity. You know, if we have the platoon commanders and the captains telling the officers, I need enforcement on this intersection because it's a high traffic injury corridor and we see a disparity in that intersection, then we look at other things, right? We haven't been able to do that because we haven't been capturing the data. Now we will be able to capture that data in the very near future. So I think we will have more answers to bring to this commission in future reports in terms of really understanding what's driving some of this and whether this is something that we can actually impact or not. So the new uh, use of force policy um, started being implemented in May, right, of 2022? The last revision, yes. Right. And the, so the, the May revision and then there was a December revision, right. that both, each of which went into effect with different thresholds. But these numbers have been collected as a result of that policy starting in May. And when the policy rolled out, you know, we expected an increase because this, as you just pointed out, is a lot more stringent than what most jurisdictions are reporting on. And we expected an increase maybe the first quarter while people were being trained. But in reality, after training, uh, the numbers continue to climb. Despite the, the, you know, clarification of the, about the methodology about how we got to this presentation because there was a slide that was omitted because it was easier to present the numbers which made it seem as if there was less disproportionate impact on use of force. Um, but in reality, even after training, even after six months of implementation, uh, the numbers continue to increase, at least into the fourth quarter. What explains that? But, uh, if you look at those numbers, and, and I, I do, I think there was some fluctuations. I mean, we, we've changed the criteria twice in the past year and a half, but I do believe there were some fluctuations in, in terms of the types of forces where they actually saw increases. And we're talking about the lower level, you know, control holes, those types of forces where we had the most significant increases. Um, this is not a why answer that I'm about to give, but I do believe that analysis of, you know, what type of incidents that have, has driven the contacts in the first place is important. The important part is data that uh, we capture some of that, but we weren't capturing it in full detail. Uh, the, other, the other part of this is you know, we really have to dig into these, these use of force reports and understand kind of how, how force are used. Because it's one thing that the, the force, if it's within the, the, the policy, that's, an, that's one thing to look at. But the other thing is, is trying to glean patterns as to why it's happening with, you know, one demographic over the other. 
is it is it because of the activity that of how we're policing you know that and that's a question that we always look at you know we are um we are i think not think i know we're making more arrests than we have in, in the last few years and with that is some of where those numbers are being driven because that means more contacts that means more confrontation sometimes people don't want you know to be arrested so we know that that is factual in terms of the more activity you have there's a potential for an increase in use of forces but the why is still the magic question in terms of the demographic disparities and we're not we're not really there yet in terms of really fully understanding what the why is um in, in your list of, of organizations and partnerships, uh, you know, some of them go back to 2017, so a good six years of, of a partnership there. Um, are there metrics that are tied into the analysis that is being provided by some of these partnerships that we can, that we can utilize to begin looking forward to measure this against? Yeah, so one of the, um, hopefully, phases in the near future with the uh, Center for Police and the Equities was the second look. And um, I, think, I think to your question is that second look, we, we wanted to look at whether some of the things that we've implemented have really had an impact. Now, it's going to be a little bit uh, difficult because of the change in policy, and that's why we, I think this commission had asked for this, and we've done it, to be able to kind of filter, to have a comparison point between use of forces that were um, added because of the policy changes compared to what it would look like if the policy didn't change. So we can compare the same you know, set of factors. I think that's going to be important, but we also you know, have to really factor in the policy changes and really call down what that disparities are with those use of forces that would not have been captured three years ago before the policy changes. So. Hopefully the CPE with the second go around, some of that will be a part of that, that analysis and may give us some answers, but we are um, excited to do that. There's another thing that we're trying to get off the ground. It's called CompStat for Justice with the, Cal the Center for Policing Equities that will hopefully give us some infrastructure to just like our any CompStat process, which is analyzing data, asking those questions. It'll, it'll give us more of ability to do that for this particular issue. They've done this with some other departments around the country. We've taken a look at it, and we've been working with them for a couple of years now, trying to get that off the ground in San Francisco, which I do believe we will get that off the ground. But basically, it's a CompStat that looks at these, these specific issues to try to figure out the why. So that's encouraging that you know at least give us another tool to to to, de to delve into this uh, based on what we've learned uh since the implementation of 501 are there training developments uh as a result of patterns that you've noticed that you will be implementing moving forward the training the ongoing training is really go goes back to a lot of what you heard with the CMCR award that you gave Sergeant Bagheran, you know, the basic concept of coordination and communication and, and those types of tactical things, when they're done right, they do tend to provide better outcomes and a reduction in force. Um, so that's ongoing. In terms of 
specific training in term for uh, and something like C uh, the trauma-informed care, some of the stuff that CIT is doing. Is there uh, a plan to expand that? Because those units usually have a lot more success at de-escalation, at least from the presentation that I saw two weeks ago. Um, I mean, we have something internal. We have a model that is impactful, that is uh, effective, and that is you know, less damaging to those folks that are in need. Um, and, and I don't understand why we don't expand. We have four officers in that particular program um, as far as I understand, right, for well, the presentation? Yeah, and, you know, so there's two things with, with that. The idea between, behind CIT is train the entire department, so everybody's using those tactics. I mean, I think if the notion is that one unit will take on all of the day-to-day -day work that's necessary to, to, to police the city, that, to me, is not the answer. Uh, to expand CIT, mainly they respond to you know more of the critical incidents, more of the incidents that require more expertise than an everyday patrol officer, and they get called out. You know we have our negotiators that get called out, but the idea is to train everybody in CIT tactics, which we have well on our way to doing that. I mean, 99% of the department has been trained on the 10-hour. CIT, and I think we're at 70 something percent for the 40 hour course. So we're still, we're still working toward that, but we need everybody trained with CIT tactics. That unit has an expertise that is very helpful, but they can't handle all the work that's out there in terms of this issue. You know, they're, they're a resource more than the savior of all. So I just want to make sure we're clear on that because unless we have, you know, a two, 300 person CIT unit, patrol officers are going to respond to these day-to-day -day calls, and a lot of these calls require CIT tactics to be implemented, time and distance and all the things that we learn in CIT training. So that's the idea is to get as many people trained as we can as we have this resource, this core unit that does, you know, some of the high, higher functioning work, and, and they are the ones that are keeping this work going in the department. So that's really important as well. I wouldn't see a problem with a 300 uh, unit CI or CIT staff unit. Um, but one of the questions around a sojourn, you use sojourn uh, you know, a lot, where we talk a lot about sojourn. How many cohorts have been through sojourn? Five. Five cohorts. And, and how is sojourn paid for? It's uh, originally there was um, a uh, donation made to the company that we are working with, which is sojourn to the past. Some of it is paid for by the department, but that, to get it off the ground, there was a, um, a donor that, uh, who we don't know who it is, that actually made a donation to Sojourn to help us get this started. For the outside. And so the, the additional cohorts have all been funded by the city. When the officers go on these trips, are they going on our staff time? Yes. Yeah. So we're losing officers to go to Sojourn. Is there an outcome directly connected as an expectation to sojourn cohort officers. Are we measuring whether any of those officers that are going to sojourn um, and returning after that experience have any improved outcomes, whether it comes to use of force, disproportionate minority contacts? Are we measuring or looking for that information? I think time will tell on that. Well, look, let's be fair about this. What training out of all the training we do, I can't think of a training where we can say 
you took this training and there's an outcome with in this area. So, uh, you know, not that that's not a, a good idea when we can do that, but I don't think we do that even with CIT. We know we've seen reductions in use of force. We know we've seen better outcomes, uh, but that's anecdotal at best in terms of really saying that CIT is the reason that all these things happen because there's a whole universe of other things that we're doing as well. So I just want to be very clear on this expectation that, you know, Sojourn is going to be anything different than any other training. I've been asked so many times at this commission, how are we going to change the culture? This is one way to do it in terms of really having people understand what these issues are, doing it with the community who are the most impacted by these issues that we're talking about and having these discussions so officers really understand what this work is about from that particular lens. So I don't think it's a fair assessment to say, you know, Bill Scott went to soldier and so does that equate to less use of forces to, you know, better context? We, we have a whole universe of training. And I don't think we do that on any of our training. I wish we could, uh, but we don't. And, but yet we're seeing improvements across the board on some of these issues. So I think soldiers is, is, is in the bucket with the rest of the training. I can't tell you that, you know, every, you know, the 200 plus officers that have done it, but, but I can tell you what David, most of them have, have shared with us, that this training was enlightening, that it made a difference. They see things a little bit differently and, and the community engagement piece of this is off the charts in terms of having these discussions. I think on the one you went, we didn't have, we had a few community members, but that has really been one of the best features of this, that we're having these very difficult discussions with members from our community around this issue. And when we get back home, you know, there's, there's obvious uh, impacts. I can tell you, some of the officers have continued those relationships, you know, with Booker T. Washington Foundation and other community people that have gone on those trips. So I think that within itself is worth, has a value because that's how we're going to change this. You know, that, that's a part of how we're going to change this. I mean, if we're trying to change culture, obviously it's very difficult to define um, every step of the way, but I just find it um, challenging to accept that we will continue to invest in strategies that aren't necessarily attached to an outcome. Um, in an evidence-based world, uh, you know, the public demands improved safety. The public demands, you know, uh, a reduction in the disproportionate minority impacts. And anecdotally, you're saying this is having an impact, but on paper, it's not. So yeah. that's yeah. that's why we asked for this presentation. I wanted an analysis. We got a lot of numbers and explanation of things that are happening that we are attempting, but I don't necessarily see a plan as far as we're gonna measure this investment and we're gonna have a percentage of an improvement. When I work for DPH funded organizations, there's an outcome attached to every single cent and these are taxpayer dollars and we really do need to improve our policing strategies to create safety equitably is what our task is and why we ask these tough, tough questions. Yes, sir. Understood. I would just say this, though, and I'm going to reemphasize this. In police training, we got officers right now spending a lot of, we are spending a lot of money and time on mobile field force tactics. There's not an, 
academic study that's going to say that was the reason that this event or that event was successful or not successful. So I, I don't think it's a fair assessment to to tag this, you know, evidence-based thing. We, we, we train a lot in a lot of different areas, and there's rarely ever an academic study that follows our training and says, is this I'm not saying that that's a bad idea, but what I'm saying, it just doesn't happen. And number one, we don't have the capacity to make it happen on our own. Two, it's, it just doesn't happen. Um, so if that's the way we're gonna look at our training, we, we wouldn't be doing anything. You know, we have to have the ability to train this department. If we can get an academic study and an academic partner to come in and say what's working and what's not, that's great. You know, body-worn cameras. We believe that there's a benefit to body-worn cameras. We don't have an academic study, to, 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 for, at least with this department, to prove that. Are we going to disinvest in body-worn cameras because of that? No, we're not. So I'm just saying, that I, th I think... I'm asking for some fairness with this assessment. You know, I, yeah, if we can get an academic study for soldiering or any other training, we will absolutely do that. But we don't do that on any of our training. And I don't necessarily expect an academic university to tell us how to do your work. Um, that's why I asked for the department to provide an analysis. And um, I, I still think we're searching for uh, that solution, obviously, um, and I hope that we continue to to at least begin to move the dial in the right direction as far as minimizing the damage, the impact that is being done to people of color in this city disproportionately. And I think that that is something uh, that we need to continue to invest time, energy, resources, and a lot of mind power, right? Um, but uh, thank you for the presentation. Those are, those are my questions. I know that I don't want to take up all this time, so uh, thank you. Uh, just a couple clarifying questions for me at the, at the outset. So I just wanted to clarify, Sergeant Rivera, what exactly, you mentioned, a, uh, I think you said it was a round two study with CPE. What, right. what exactly, what, can you just clarify what exactly that means? What, what will CPE be doing specifically? No, but she can. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, actually, you probably should take this. Um, so the city report that they produced in, I think it was 2020, um, the, and then they came and presented here at the commission on, on their report as well. Um, they'll be rerunning the analyses that they did there with updated data. So I think the data that uh, they had looked at stopped around 2018. So as you all know from looking at these, uh, these statistics quarter after quarter after quarter, a lot of the numbers have changed. So we're eager to see what they come up with or what they find, uh, but that, that's essentially part of it. There's some other aspects to the work that we're gonna be doing, including uh, being part of their nationwide, our data will go into their nationwide um, effort to national justice database that um, will allow for them to really dig into some of these issues of disparities and race and um, and the contributing factors to those disparities. That's like their core is they want to get that answer that we all are sitting here asking. So that's essentially, we're part of that. Um, great. I, I want to ask you follow up on that, but 
But just one other basic question at the outset. Uh, on slide eight, there's this, when you list out all the things you're doing, uh, and maybe I missed this, I'm sorry. Uh, under training, there's bias sync two-year study. C can you just say what, what that study is? <laughs> I, I'll talk a little bit about that. So BiasSync is a web-based uh, bias training, or not anti-bias training, really. And it uh, was implemented, I believe it was 2020 or late 2019. So there's web-based training, there's vignettes, there is uh, you know, video-based, there's you know question and answer and tests and all that stuff. But the idea is with the bias training, should not, in our belief, be a kind of a one and done where you're training, you know, the entire department and then you don't touch it for forever. And so this training was meant to basically reinforce some of the principles that are learned how to deal with, you know, implicit bias, uh, strategies to 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 um, mitigate the implicit biases that we all have and those types of things. So these little vignettes that uh, are sent to the officers and they go on and they do a little online you know refresher course or not even refresher because it's new material periodically that that gives to us that we, we get and the whole department is is doing this uh it was a i think it's two year two year run for this and we'll see kind of how it plays out but there's you know questions and, and and things that the company will ask and then we get feedback in terms of whether this training is sinking in by you know the answers that the officers provide in these in, the, in these vignettes so gives us a little bit of a, a, a glimpse into whether the training is actually at least resonating with with questions that are part of the the process right i just wanted to ask about that so yeah what is the study piece the study is measuring whether the training is is working whether the biasync training itself is changing outcomes yes because par part of this um you know if you have ever gotten going online and you're taking an implicit bias or your survey or whatever they call it and you get a series of questions and then it really kind of says you know yeah there are implicit biases there so you do this over time with the, the training venues and then you take at the end of this another of those type of surveys and see if there's there's improvement in, in these issues so it's a uh, it's it's different than the, the the routine you know classroom training that we do, but we thought that it was worth a, a a look. Great. So I guess sometimes we can assess whether training works in an evidence-based way. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. So it's not like it's not like we're not trying. No, no, no. That's <laughs> so. good. No, no. Because I heard you say earlier to Commissioner Yanez that that couldn't necessarily do that, but but that's good that we're doing it in this in this particular place. So, uh, Director McGuire, you said that that the round two study from CP is going to get to the root of why. Uh, no, you did no. not. Okay, I'm glad <laughs> that's why I asked. No, no, um, they they will rerun their analysis, and they they're trying. That's their core kind of mission is to get to that why. To like, we all want to know why, because if we have the why, we can address it. We can come up with the right answer to solve the problem. Um, but didn't they tell us why the last time around? They, I think the extent, and we're just struggling with this, but I think the extent to their conclusion was they eliminated sort of the the other possible yes. conclusions that you know race could get intermingled with, um, and 
and said there's still a, there's some evidence saying that there's that race plays a factor. Um, but the why, um, no, I don't recall that they had a concrete. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just asked. I didn't see that in your slides, but they did, as you said, control for the most the most likely non-racial factors for race disparities. They looked at neighborhood demographics. They looked at crime rates in the neighborhood. They looked at whether the suspect was armed or not armed. And none of these are the various other factors. I can't remember them all. None of these factors fully accounted for the race disparities. In fact, the race disparities, I think, for most of them are pretty, still pretty pronounced, right? Like, 15x or, or more in some cases for, for black people, right? I haven't reviewed the report <clears throat> recently. I'm sorry. Um, so we know that, that the why is not race-neutral factors, right? I mean, isn't that the why? We're trying to ask whether it's a – race, a race disparity by itself doesn't mean bias, right? It could just be that non – that legitimate non-racial Correct. law enforcement considerations are driving it, or it could be racial bias. And the way we – get to the bottom of the whys, we control for all, all the non-racial factors, and we see, is there still a disparity left over? And the CP report seems seem to say pretty clearly yes, right? Which also does not necessarily translate to or equate to bias. Well, that, that is how we determine bias, right? We, we strip away everything that's not bias, and if it, there's something Race still plays left, a factor. That's how they phrase it, and that's how... Race plays a factor in whatever the, the situation is. But take race out of it for any at. regression analysis. There is an infinite number of other factors that could be driving a correlation. We can never, you know, we can never run a regression analysis even, with infinity mm -hmm. variables. So we run all of the most likely ones. And if there's something still left over there, we say these two things are, are correlated. And that's what they did here. So isn't but, the, the conclusion is... No, sorry. The conclusion is racial bias is playing a role in, these, in the race disparities, correct? I would not agree with that necessarily because I, one, don't have the report in front of me and haven't looked at it recently, and two, I don't think that they could control for everything. I think they even said that. Uh -huh. um, so those are factors, and then um, I, I think that... Nevertheless, um, whether how you're saying it is true or uh, otherwise, um, the work that we're doing in the department seeks to improve the circumstances. And what would you say if you could, you know, going off what you, you, the point you just made, you talked about all of the department's efforts, many of them very laudable efforts recommended to us by the U.S. Department of Justice. What would you say if you could point to a number that's improved? Now, I understand, the, I take the point that you can't always draw a direct line between one program and one outcome, but just overall, since we've been doing these reforms, what's one number that you would point to and say, hey, that really shows a decrease in, in a race disparity or an or in, or in indicator of bias that you think we should All look three at? of stops, uses of force, and... Um, searches. What am I? Searches. Thank you. All three of those metri metrics, as we have watched them over the last four, five, six years, have everything's come down, right? Disparity. Across all demographics. Sorry, just to clarify, come hmm. down 
disparities have come down or by quantity by quantity by okay quantity. but i'm asking about now, disparity yeah yeah uh, the rate of decline for African Americans is the highest for uh, when you are comparing any one of the other demographics in all three of those. The rate of decline is the highest for African Americans. The rate of decline kind of then gets closer uh, among other populations, and I'd have to look at the metrics again to be specific on any other demographic, but those three for African Americans, it's come down at a higher rate, at a faster rate than any others. So those are indicators. The other indicators in uh, searches, it's less about, no, it is. Um, in searches and yield rates, if you are looking at that, first and foremost, our yield rates are higher than many other jurisdictions in the state. Um, and the yield rates that we, when you compare across demographics, it's better than it has been in the past, meaning closer to uh, the same, if not, sorry, yield rates higher for African Americans than they are for whites, which usually, if you're looking at the, at the literature, um, indicates that um, searches are conducted on the basis of something other than race. It's the opposite, right? That it's conducted on the basis of race. When you when you no. have higher... if your yield rates are similar to one another. Oh, oh, yes, yeah. they're the same. Yes, right. okay, perfect. But just to be clear, the you, the total numbers of all of those things went down, but the disparities are as pronounced as ever, right? I think the one area where there has been modest improvement has been um, the last thing you brought up: yield rate differential. Um, but I, I would say it's modest. Is that uh, fair? Well, the disparities piece, I don't think we've found the right metric, honestly. I don't, I don't think that necessarily the metric that we have in our quarterly analytical and data uh, activity and data report is the best. Um, and, you know, we're constantly looking at uh, metrics that might tell a better story. Great. I, I mean, I just want to ask Chief a, a more global question, which is, you know, Part of a big part of what sparked the U.S. DOJ's interest in this department was a slew of racist and homophobic text messages that became public through um, a, 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 through a criminal proceeding. Um, you know, Commissioner Yanez asked for this issue to be agendized. Use of force disparities, according to CPE, cannot be explained by legitimate non-race factors. Um, I, and I think that much, Commissioner, I mean, uh, Director McGuire and I agree on. Um, that same report from August 2020 also found enormous disparities in traffic stops. Again, could not be explained by non-racial non factors. You know, and, 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 and that was even more definite than use of force. You know, black people are committing traffic infractions at the same rate as, as their white peers. So there, there, there was... There was again seem to be pointing towards bias um, we just had it's you know we just had a, a lawsuit settle publicly um, from a former officer that alleged race racial discrimination by this department that was not isolated but widespread and it, I mean if you were to read the complaint you wouldn't know whether it was filed today or it could have been just as easily filed in the 1950s in the deep south again those are just allegations um, you know and then last year we had uh, an official 
District Station Twitter account, liking the tweets from a racist uh, Twitter account that makes light of George Floyd's death. That's the whole purpose of the account. Um, and so I understand that the department's taken many laudable actions, but I think there is a, a sense that we haven't seen results. And I, I just want, I want to, I'm curious to hear from you, do you think this department still has a problem when it comes to racial bias? I think we have a challenge to figure out what's driving the disparities. And, you know, I definitely, you know, some of the examples you, you, you've given are, because I know all the details for all of those issues, I, I don't, and, and that, that some of which can't be shared in this forum, um, I don't know if that those are the best examples to, to, to illustrate your point, but I'll just say this. We have a challenge with understanding why the disparities are being driven, and that's our challenge, to try to figure that out. I don't, I, I'm not saying that, you know, there is no possibility that, you know, bias exists, but what I'm saying is we're trying to figure out what is driving the disparities, if it's implicit, if it's explicit, or if it's um, other factors. Um, you know, one of the things that I didn't mention a second ago when I was talking about some of you know, what we are implementing, our, our wanted bulletins. You know, we didn't have a system uh, that really tracked what, what are we giving officers every day to go out and look for these people because they're wanted or they have a crime that they committed and they're a person of interest or a suspect or they have a warrant or whatever. You know, what does that look like in terms of the aggregate demographics? I think it's really important also to factor in, and I know this is a part of the, what's already been discussed here, but you know, the offending rates and the, the, lo the local issues that we have in terms of who's offending and what we're asking officers to do has to be factored in here and really understood as, as to what part that that plays in, into this equation. I'm not gonna sit here and say uh, I, that the conclusion on these reports is that it's got to be racial bias because everything else was eliminated. I don't think we really understand, right, as we sit here today, what's driving some of these disparities. And that's our job to figure that out. And that's what we're working with all these other, you know, academic and other, other partners to try to figure out. I do think it, things, some things are better, but I do think that we still have the challenges, you know, some of which you just mentioned. Um, but I do think some things are, are, are better. Great, thank you, Chief. Uh, Commissioner Yi. Thank you, uh, Vice President Carter Overstone. Um, just to, I guess, to this report, uh, since you have captured all the data, I guess, um, is it possible to go back through it and take a look at, uh, looking at which um, district or station or the neighborhood that you have these uh, disparity, high, you know, high incidence of disparity and to break it down and then go one step further to see where it's happening at is it uh, continuing of certain office uh, members or you know because you have the data now and then your second report will come back you know if you break it down is it the tenderloin that's getting it is it the project where you have to you know you you know you know have homeless there or the people that are taking drugs and 
you, you're uh, affecting the arrest and stuff like that. It, you know, taking those data, uh, anomalies that do happen, uh, bring it out and then dissect it. I know your, um, your, I guess there are consultants will do that for you. I was wondering if, uh, because you're, I guess, uh, closer to the grindstone, which is in the city, you know what's happening, you know, the, you, you know what district has the more, the higher incidence, uh, the west side is, uh, is a little uh, quieter than, than the east side, so just wondering if you can report on that. Sure. So. Um one of the cool things in working with data and working with our technology folks that are intimately connected in kind of maintaining our data lake and providing us the tools to kind of get into the data uh, is with enough people and money, you can really do anything. Uh, unfortunately, I am very resource constrained as far as an analytics shop. It is me plus at right now five people. One of my folks has been tagged out to uh, HSOC to support uh, APEC. Uh, I also have another member who is on military leave for the rest of the year. Um, I would love to, uh, is kind of the, 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 the answer. Um, I do not have the staff uh, at this time to do much deeper analysis than what we're currently cranking out on a quarterly basis uh, in the Quadar. So after the APEC, you'll have more resources available, say have, in December? I'll have one analyst back. Okay. Um, and then uh, the issue, whether it's uh, homeless versus, uh, uh, I guess, call for service, and then versus domestic, you know, the data, can you break it up even more when you do get the, these, these reports of disparity that's happening? Uh, is it happening during the homelessness? Because you, ha you, have, you have the data for the first quarter of this year and the second quarter. As you reported, um, you had, uh, for homeless, you had 77 homeless report. And then in the second quarter is 67. Mm -hmm. And this, this out of curiosity, is that part of the, I guess, the racial disparity? Are there more homeless, you know, uh, use of force when you have, have these homeless places? Um. Are they, in, are they in, into the data of disparity? So, uh, yes. So every number presented tonight is a use of force on an individual, and all of those individuals are in one big, I have had force applied against me bucket. Um, and then all of those individuals in that bucket have particular data tags attached to them. Some of them are race and ethnicity, some of them are age, gender. One of the flags is homeless. Um, so if you are asking whether those 77 individuals exist in the chart. Yes, they are. Back here, yes, they, they do okay. exist there. And then the, the level of resistance too. You have, uh, you have I think it's uh, five, five level of resistance too, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Compliance, passive, non-compliant. And then active resistance, and then assaultive, and then life-threatening. Is that also broken up or is that all just all lumped together for the purposes of this reporting it is all a single any use of force uh, that is reported is counted as a use of force there is no severity breakdown uh, in this analysis so in the officers it says can I help you up 
is, and he touches the person, use of force? That depends on the 5.01 standard we're talking about. I think that it changed a little bit in between 2021 and 2023. Yeah. Um, it is a challenge to work with that particular bump in policy. Um, I can't answer that definitively off the okay. top of my head. Uh, I'll answer that. That sure. example you just gave, no, that's not a use of force. Okay. And, and, and then uh, my, my issue is if you can break it down by district, because it tells us where this is all happening. Is it happening on the east side, north side, west side, in, in the center, San Francisco? So uh, I like to see that in the report broken out by district. I like to also see if it's, um, I, I guess the, I guess the, I guess you got the quarters, and if you can get down drill downs to the, to the, to the month, sometimes weekends are heavier than weekdays, where you have the use of force because there's the amount of calls that you do get, and maybe you can do a comparative, which is related to calls, versus the disparity. So, so I will say that the. QDAR does contain district by district reporting of the counts of uses of force. Um, and I know that we break down by month. I can't remember if we do month and district, but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of slices and dices on that. The yeah. other um, forthcoming in the future, uh, <laughs> as soon as we get it all up and running, um, item that will be of interest to this commission and the public is a dashboard, an interactive dashboard that would allow anyone to slice and dice the data in any way they would like to see it. Uh, just like uh, our Vice President Carter Overstone and Commissioner Giannis, we, we like to bring that disparity down where it's, um, I guess, and I'll just end it and thank you very much for the report. Commissioner Benedicto. <clears throat> thank you, uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, thank you for that presentation, uh, Director McGuire and Mr. Cunningham. Um, you know, we've had a, a fairly robust discussion, so I'll endeavor not to repeat any of the ground covered by my fellow commissioners. Um, I think the word, to, to bring things a little bit back, you know, there are, are sort of two big questions here, which is I know why what Commissioner Yanya has raised and what was raised in, in the reporting that we saw in Mission Local that, that in some ways led to this presentation. And there's, there's the big why, which we've spent the last better part of an hour talking about, the big why of disparities in San Francisco and in law enforcement. And they exist, and we don't have an answer to the big why. And that's been the case since 2016, and before then as well, but since we've really, as a department, paid close attention to this at that time. And then there's the more recent why, which is why, after seeing our disparities remain stubbornly consistent, maybe modest improvements, however you want to characterize it, we saw a significant jump, not explainable by just changes in reporting standards, and from the looks of the presentation today, a jump that might be, I, I know it's, it's a little bit of apples-oranges comparison, but when looking at the 2022 into 2023 numbers, just comparing by the same standard, might persist. So it wasn't just a single blip. It would be one thing if it looked like it reverted back to our prior, the same slash modest improvements numbers. But instead, whatever this jump was at the end of 2022 appears to be in some form 
persisting. And I think that is the urgent reason why we called for this discussion today, because we, we talk about disparities in almost everything we, we talk about, but the reason we're here today is because, yes, that big why, but also that smaller, more recent why. And we've heard explanations, I mean, Chief provided some potential ones about whether it could be types of incidents, it could be a specific types of holds. Uh, Commissioner Yi provided um, a number of, uh, of potential ideas, and, and I, I think it's worth taking some time, appreciating that we're all staff con constrained, um, e even if it takes additional time, uh, to try to dig in to that more recent why, because that feels like it's pressing and urgent and new. Uh, all of these, all the things in the slides, uh, benchmark, diversity recruitment, these changes have obviously been in place for a number of years and have been meant to address the big why. We'll, you know, we've, but we're not going to repeat all our efforts to attempt to change that big why, but I think we need to narrow the focus. I think this was a good first discussion and a good helpful sort of level setting, but I think that maybe, and I know our calendar is pretty booked through the end of the year, but sometime in the first quarter of next year, uh, especially as it looks like, you know, again, it'd be one thing if it looked like Q4 2022 was just a blip, then we could, that, that's a little bit of a different exercise, but I think we need to look closely at some of the ideas brought up by Commissioner Yi, by Commissioner Yanez, by the Vice President, by the Chief, to determine the, the more pressing, urgent uh, increase because it has been progress to see the overall volume of searches and stops and forced decline. It has been, and you know, we've seen the disparities hold, but you know, now that seeing disparities jump is the opposite uh, of progress. And so we want to see why I, I think that's uh, uh, something that this commission is very interested in, appreciating that there's no way to, to get the perfect answer because we operate in the world of social science and not chemistry, where at the, the end of the day is a formula. I had a political science professor that described the social sciences as the hard sciences because we're not able to get the answers, and I think that's true. But I, I think that with this as a first piece of the conversation, I think we need to have a, a follow-up conversation about that increase and some theories, even if they can't be academically tested, even if they're only going to be subsequently academically tested, I think a slide with some theories as to how we went from a disparity um, of, of, of 15 and 9 and 11 um, from black versus white disparity throughout 2022 to a disparity of 25. I know there was some discussion when the uh, reporting came out that maybe that was because of the reporting period. If that's part of the answer, then I think we need a slide that says that could be part of the answer. But I think that the first step to making any reductions is recognizing, here's some theories we need to test, you know, the scientific method, you need, you need your hypothesis. And what we saw here was a what, but I, I still think we need to figure out how to, um, you know, while not abandoning our work for the big why, to figure out, to look at this jump and treat it as, as pressing. You know, we get the chief support every week on specific crimes. If we saw a jump this significant in violent crime, there'd be a lot of questions about, about specifically what caused, you know, an order of magnitude difference in, in violent crime and what are the specific steps that we think we can take. It would just be, well, crime goes up and down. So I think that as a first piece, this is a helpful sort of context setting, but I think we need to have more discussion and with some specific um, proposals, again, some that were voiced tonight as the, as the what we think might have caused that that significant jump that might, looking at the early 2023 data, be, be persisting. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this is a good first conversation and certainly we can uh, do some looking into this. We can certainly try to kind of run different cross tabs and descriptive statistics and I'm fearful of what that turns up, meaning I'm not fearful of it showing the same information, I'm fearful of it showing the same information, meaning <laughs> that it's not gonna give us any answers that we all want. That's my worry. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do it, right? Um, so uh, that would be my first thought. My second thought is really that, um, again, I'm this particular metric, so let me give you a baseline here. If we were to do the, the calculation for this disparity metric based on one use of force for an African-American and one use of force for a white person, that disparity is seven, seven times. The seven times, uh, uh, the calculation that we're talking about is a seven versus a zero or a one, right? Um, because the population differential. So the, I want, I have a strong desire to get to a better metric that's a bit more evidence-based, and there are a couple out there that I'd like to kind of talk to my colleagues and the chief about a little bit more in depth, um, and then see, and, and look at that kind of as a, as a different, see if that bears out this, what we're seeing. You know, th there are multiple ways to look at this. I want to know if it shows up in multiple, multiple ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of that discussion, yeah, is providing other metrics that might be helpful. I think it's helpful to see that. Is there an anticipated date for the next CPE city report release? Just We're still finalizing the MOU. Uh, so, sorry, I, I don't have an answer to that right now. Okay, do you think it will be in, in the year 2024? Maybe at the end, okay. if Possible. in 2024, yeah. Okay, and then I think, um, you know, we talked about the most recent CP City report, by, and I know it's, uh, I think it would be helpful to members of the public if you could provide that to the commission staff so they could share it so it's more easily easily findable. Yeah, well, we reshare it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, that's all. In, in, oh, in that CPE, I'm sorry, uh, to just, just clarification, in that CPE, CPE report on the website as well? It is. Yeah, it yes. is. So all of any studies that we've done, any of these type of reports, they're, they're on our website. They are all well, on our so. website. In the published reports section. Commissioner Walker. Thank you for this initial report. And um, I mean, it, it really is important to emphasize that the, the definition of use of force changed during this time too. So it's kind of hard to compare apples to oranges and sort of make sense of it. But I did have a question about, um, because it was brought up before, I mean, not necessarily neighborhood uh, demographics of arrests, but um, assigned command efforts, for instance. There's been recent efforts to go after drug dealers specifically, which probably affects the, these type of things. So that information would be important to weigh in to this. Um, also, we, we have body cameras on our officers when they engage in these use of forces. So even evaluating that might be very interesting to determine what the interaction was. And 
I mean, that would sort of guide us around training, but it also would enlighten about why the use of force happened. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly would be important as we engage in community discussions about this, because I think that it's, right now we're just looking at numbers and I, I believe this is kind of a nuanced thing of, and also determining, I mean, when we look at uh, racial bias versus, versus racial disparity, um, that's a huge issue um, because it is, it involves other agencies that might be involved in these numbers as well. Department of Health, you know, Department of Homeless Services, um, Mental Health Services, all of that stuff sort of pertains to this. So um, I think that ideally, the more information we can have specifically about the use of force incident, the more we can sort of see where, where that comes from because it doesn't necessarily just exist in the use of force action. It, it's like, why are we here kind of thing. So, um, I mean, this is all gonna be really important and I, you know, I wish we had better technology and more advances <laughs> along that line. And I think that there's certainly things that um, can be talked about around the availability of technology, but um, we have the opportunity, I think, with, with the technology today to help us with this. So. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, and we're very early, very early I in know. some conversations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Director Henderson. Thank you. Uh, I just had a um, I just wanted to respond. I, I know several times from tonight's conversation, and I think you, ye, you were had raised this issue about the staffing to try and address some of these concerns to drill down more on the data stuff. But I just wanted to remind the commission that we already have several ongoing conversations about the expansion use uh, of some of the data being collected and used from the police department in two specific areas uh, that I want, just want to make sure we're clear about. One is the information that is uh, available for our audit practices. That's an ob objective approach interpreting some of that data. And so one of the ways rather than waiting for with a precatory approach to the department having folks assigned to the work and collecting data is sharing more of the data externally to allow that to be processed and then secondarily we just had this conversation just a few weeks ago about the policy approaches the policy approaches that are being drafted with regard to benchmark and collection with the department in terms of how they collect, analyze, and make transparent data that is coming from, through, and to the department. And so I don't know if a commission, if a commissioner or the commission is watching that or wants to be involved in that, but that will certainly have an end result in terms of what information can be used that might be helpful beyond what the department is able to do with whatever resources they already have. And the, the biggest point for that obviously is we're not going to fix what we can't talk about and we can't talk about what we don't know. And I believe these conversations begin and end with the data and so the decisions that we make around this data beyond just the stop data or arrest data or the yield rate or use of force 
I think we're only going to get there if we have more of the raw data to look at because it's a difficult conversation to track when it's apples and oranges and we talk about use of force and we have the direct correlation to race. It's, there's no question that there are race disparities here. Whether they reduced, increased, stayed the same in terms of volume, race disparities exist from these numbers. The real issue is what specific steps are we going to take to address them. From my perspective, I believe once we have a drill down, more correct and accurate correlation from the data, I think it'll be easier for us to come up with the harder questions that can't be answered here today. But that's only going to take place if we have expanded access and use of the data to confirm exactly what's going on so we know the areas to focus on and how to address them. That's it. Uh, Director McGuire, just I just wanted to give you an opportunity to expand on one thing that you said earlier very briefly um, when we were talking about what to take away from the CPE report, which, again, CPE controlled for all of the non-racial factors that it thought was relevant, and the race disparities remained. And you said quickly as an aside that um, another, you know, one way to interpret that is that race was itself race bias was itself driving the disparity. But you quickly mentioned, as an aside, that perhaps uh, CP didn't account for other factors, didn't control for all the relevant factors. And, and that's true. That could be another explanation for it. So According I just wanted, to them, yes. Right. So I, I just wanted to ask, what, what other factors do you think CPE should have controlled for that it didn't? Recidivism. <laughs> Um, that is one one factor. Um, the rearrest of the same individuals is one factor. The huh. uh, it, that is just a, the beginning, right? Why, why? That's interesting. Why would recidivism be relevant? It means that um, the same person with the same demographic is counted multiple times in the data. Um, now, but, that but doesn't when an necessarily officer decides mean... to use use of force, they may or may not know whether a person has recidivated, Correct. and the decision whether or not to use force has to be based on the facts and circumstances at the time, you know, the threat that the individual poses, right? So that's, I guess at the margin, recidivism could play some role in that if you know someone's a repeat offender. Now, and... if we're talking about use of force exclusively, if we're right, talking so... about other, other metrics, other data sets that they had access to, that then less varying levels of applicability in that way. But CP determined that recidivism was not uh, worth controlling for in their estimation the first go around. I don't think that they had access to data that would have given that them that. But they could have certainly gotten it. That's not hard to get. It's Corey. I think. I'm sorry. Oh, we would have to look into it, but it's it's a challenging data set. The one that they had. Okay. Um, well, I guess what I would ask for this follow-up uh, study by CPE, if there are any factors, any n race-neutral factors that this department thinks need to be controlled for to make sure to raise those to CPE at the earliest possible time so that their report can account for it. Because I what I really would love to avoid is for them to put together another beautiful report like this come to largely the same conclusion and then have, be having the same discussion in two years where we say, well, they controlled for everything, 
huge disparities remain, but we we're, we 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 claim that there are perhaps other factors that that should have been looked at that weren't looked at. So let's if if the whatever the department thinks they need to look at, let's tell CP at the outset. And CP is obviously a very respected organization affiliated with a lot of prestigious academic institutions. They have a lot of expertise in this. I'm sure that they they'll be able to either accommodate our request or explain why a factor such as recidivism maybe isn't um, uh, worth controlling for. Yeah. Um, if we measure for it, we will make sure that they have it. Um, meaning if we have the data for it to, we will make sure it happens. I will also add that, you know, I said recidivism right off the top, but the, there may be factors that they don't know, that none of us know, right? That's part of the social science and the regression model. It's part of the, you know, the fit of the model. It's part of you know, the R score and the everything, you know, all the statistical relevance, right? So the, there, there are unknowns in any of these types of statistical models, but they also were the ones that said that they may not have controlled for everything. So um, they, they do their best with their priors coming in and establishing what they feel are the right things and what they've seen in other data as being the right things to control for. The other piece of this is, and I wanna mention quickly, that disparities and bias as uh, Commissioner Walker stated you know, they are different and um, that race could play a factor as CPA or race was likely to pay, play a factor as CPE said that that can mean any number of things it can mean the officer it could play a factor with the officer individually it could play a factor in the individual coming to be in the same location as the officer, right? So it, it, there are a number of ways in which race could play a factor. And, and yes, CPE is, has endeavored to control for all of those things. But when they say that race plays a factor for the department, it could mean the individual officer, it could mean the department as a whole, the policy, the, di the directive that was received by the officer. There is a lot, of, a lot to parse out in addition to race playing a factor. All right, well, thank you. To your first point, uh, as Donald Rumsfeld once said, I take your point that there are some unknown unknowns, <laughs> but this is a pretty, this field of research has a very long pedigree. Uh, this is not some, emer some new emerging field. Um, I, the folks at CPE and other academics have a lot of experience identifying the most relevant possible factors, and it sounds like we agree that the department will let CPE know what factors it feels it should control for so that those can be appropriately taken into account. Thank you so much for your presentation. Sergeant Youngblood, can we please go to public comment? Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item nine, please approach the podium. Oh, good evening. I was listening. I'm very glad that this report was put together, although I do want to add two suggestive breakdowns as well, and I do agree with Commissioner Walker about what situations is being developed that causes this. Is it a mental illness? Is it a personal dispute? Could it be a robbery or a crowd control? 
And the second thing I'd like to see also added to this report is also breakdown between who are residents and who are not in terms of if the drug market has any effect onto the changing data or is it a individual who's come here and not understanding how laws here work, depending on what it is. So I'd like to see also that if that would also be great to add. Thank you. Hi there, Alan Burradell. Um, I, I just heard a couple of comments early on uh, from her, uh, the director. Uh, she said that, you know, I'd like to know why do we require documentation and analysis when force is used? I, I know why we need the documentation and analysis, but she said uh, we require a lot more here in San Francisco. I'd like to know why. Um, another thing is officers can't use force on someone who is not a threat to themselves or to someone else, but to themselves. And that's something I'd like to know more about. Uh, if I'm a threat to myself and I'm resisting, um, I think that force should be used against me. I would expect that. Maybe not in the moment. Um, and, and then just uh, some other comments from the rest of the presentation. Uh, there seems to be an eagerness to point to racial uh, bias to explain these numbers. And I would encourage you, you all to consider uh, to step away from trying to explain the racial disparity. Maybe there's been too much focus on that. Maybe we need to focus on compelling compliance, trying to educate kids uh, to comply, maybe about um, having more outreach from the police department to schools. Uh, I don't hear any talk about that. There was not one comment about that tonight, not, not even one. It's all about the training of officers, uh, uh, the, Sequoia, the Sequoia program or whatever. I looked that up while I was sitting there. There's nothing about teaching kids to comply with law enforcement. It's so simple. <laughs> Thank you. I was um, listening about uh, the use of force on African American or people of color. And then we talked about the Journey trip. All of that comes together. That's why we. I mean, I went on that trip, and we talk about the use of force, but about the use of force that was put on those people back when we watched, when we went to go see the, the uh, on the Shoshone trip, when those police had those dogs and all those things coming after those children. It's still happening today. It's just different. So I do think that trip made a difference. It taught me more about my own history that I didn't know at the age that I am now. I am 63 years old, going to be 64. And what I saw on that trip really turned me to come back and use that in my healing circle, you know, to teach my children about their history. That needs to happen. Do we need an analysis? We had people, police officers, that came there that was in tears I've never been so close, not close to them, but had a relationship with them. 
while I was there and never had a relationship with a police officer except for coming here to the police commission, but never had a relationship with a police officer. And for those people that are that downing that trip, I know they went there and they felt what I felt. I need my children to come there, the community where I'm a community member and I went. Our teach, that's teaching us. We're gonna have more children that may wanna go on that trip. And I know you felt it when you went there. And those of you that took the trip that saw all of the things on the walls saying whites only, dogs, and all of the little babies that's four years old being put in prison and their ch parents are scared. So they have to use their children. Don't take that away from us. That is the end of public comment. Line item 10, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 12 below closed session, including public comment on item 11, a vote whether to hold item 12 in closed session. If you would like to make public comment regarding closed session, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 11, vote on whether to hold item 12 in closed session, San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10, action. A motion to hold item 12 in closed session. Second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. We are going into closed session. Gov TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 12 held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.12A, action. Motion to not disclose items 12. Second. All right, for members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item 13, please approach the podium. Seeing none, Commissioner Walker on the motion, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. Line item 14, adjournment.